Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today with Steve. Aloha. And appearing for the second time on Big Dumb Movie from the world-renowned Wasted Potential podcast, the legend, Ronnie. There is no God here. (laughs) Thank you, Ronnie. Also joining us from Wasted Potential, because Hobo Dan was not available, Shane. (laughs) What's up? (sighs) (laughs) I worked really hard for that part. Took a bong hit? Or a mess. (laughs) Glad, Glad to be here. Thank you for filling in today, Shane. We appreciate it. I I appreciate you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you guys could be here so we can discuss the 1997 John Woo film, Face Off. 97's a good vintage. It's just a good decade. It is, isn't it? The back end was just, it peaked. It really peaked. Yeah, Absolutely. We're going to have way different opinions on this movie today. Yeah, well, some are going to be right and some are going to be wrong. (laughs) That's the difference. That really is the distinction. (laughs) Now, we once did a podcast on a movie called Con Air. We did. Where we talked about Nicolas Cage and his wonderful performances and his hits and his misses. I actually didn't go back. I'm assuming that's what we talked about. But I don't think we've ever talked about John Travolta. So I mean, why would you? <laughs> why would you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So maybe to, to kick things off in the right direction, Ronnie, can you talk to us about John Travolta? Do you like his movies? Do you like the man? I was thinking about this and I was trying to think, what have I actually seen with Travolta? Like everyone likes Pulp Fiction and I've seen The Punisher and I've seen Battlefield Earth. So this is the first three things I can think of. I have one good and then two <laughs> terrible movies. So I guess it's kind of where I feel. I don't like Grease. <laughs> I've never seen Welcome Back, Cotter, so I don't really know. I don't have any opinions on John Travolta's acting career, but I have opinions about his personal life. What are your opinions on his personal life? Um, He seems like a well-balanced human being. <laughs> the man's a legend. Well, he is OT8. So. Well, also, his wife has died and his son has died, so he's been through a lot of trauma, so I laugh at his pain, apparently. <laughs> yeah, Nicolas Cage shot his son with a sniper <laughs> rifle. <laughs> that was a very sad day. It was a, it was a rough time, but luckily in Scientology, everyone is immortal, so it kind of washes out. <laughs> That's true, and I wasn't sure if we were going to go this direction, but you guys may know this, you may not know this. I am a former Scientologist. That's incredible. Really? Yes, legitimately. Oh, that's amazing. Man, this is going to be a fun podcast. I have questions and I have a story to well, All my notes are fucked. I was going to just I was just going to throw wild shit about Scientology and now now we got a fact checker. No, feel free. I can validate it or I can tell you if it's bullshit. Uh, I am not a Scientologist anymore, obviously. I am no longer in any cult. <laughs> Except for podcasting. Let alone one that expensive. That makes one of us here. <laughs> the cult of wasted potential just our podcasting oh. in general so you're right Shane there is immortality in a sense that Scientologists actually believe in reincarnation 
So when you die, you come back again as another human, not like you become an animal or a flower or like, you know, in whatever like Eastern philosophy sense, Mm. you come back as another person. And the idea is to ascend beyond having to do that. That's one of the ideas behind Scientology anyway. It's still basically Buddhism, except you come back as a person. I was about to say, that sounds like a wholly original idea. Yeah. (laughs) Not that any of them are that original. It's mostly just slightly different flavors of the same bullshit, but whatever. Hot take. (laughs) Burning all the religious bridges down now. Steve, John Travolta, what do you think, man? I mean, huge Pulp Fiction fan. Not sure I'm all that fond of the rest of his work. I mean, I appreciate a lot of people really like Grease and uh, Saturday Night Fever. Not a movie I'm particularly fond of, but it certainly was a cultural moment at the point it released. You know, Welcome Back, Cotter. I remember watching a little bit on Nick at Night as a kid, and I kind of thought it was mildly amusing. But yeah, I, I you know my, my my big impression of John Travolta really is that he had Pulp Fiction and not a whole lot else I really need to pay attention to. <laughs> well, I really liked the Look Who's Talking movies when I was a kid. Oh, I always forget he was in those. So, like, that's kind of what I think of because it's, like, some of my earliest memories of John Travolta exposure is him being, like, the goofy dad to counterpart Kirstie Alley, even though he's, like, a stepdad or yeah or what have you, with uh, Bruce Willis as the talking baby. Not that those movies were great, but they uh, they certainly sit in my mind as being watchable, although I haven't rewatched them in a long time. You see, that's where I definitely would overlap. Like, I remember thinking they were kind of amusing as a little kid, but I think I don't think I've sat through any of them since I was 12, so I don't, I don't know how I'd feel about them. I have a feeling I wouldn't like them all that much. <laughs> John Travolta picks some weird fucking projects. Like, he <laughs> seems to be in a lot of bad movies, Oh, Even yeah. as much as recently, within the last few years, he did Gotti, which has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Supposed to be like one of the worst mob movies ever made. Yeah. Face Off got 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, so... We're gonna get there. <laughs> well, it's clearly a masterpiece, right? <laughs> but then that one that Fred Durst directed? Yes, he yeah. the Fanatic. <laughs> I wish Freddy would come and chop off your head and it would roll in the street. And a truck would squish it, and the blood would splatter everywhere, and everyone would watch it. <laughs> the fanatic, you know, I, like I think people may be unaware or have forgotten his career really was borderline dead when he did Pulp Fiction. Tar- Tarantino brought him back. He, the real, really, the only reason he got this or, or Broken Arrow or a lot of those other parts during the late '90s was because. Pulp Fiction took off. If you look at the list of movies he he was in during like the 80s in particular and into the very early 90s, all of a sudden you realize he's in a lot more stuff than most people remember. It's just that most of it was garbage nobody wanted to remember. And like <laughs> Urban Cowboy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and early, I, I always forget about that movie. And as a film, I actually think that it's the other best thing he was ever in, aside from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I don't hate it, dude. No, it's actually really not a bad movie. And I if, if, if I can remove the way I feel about him from it, it really is actually a pretty damn good film in its own right. Um, but uh, one other thing he was in... Of note during the late 80s was a, of note, barely, it was a movie called White Man's Burden about a racist white guy who freaks out when he gets fired by his African-American boss. I think White Man's Burden, Lloyd. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a real burden. White Man's Burden, Lloyd, my man. White Man's Burden. 
which is a phrase they'd stolen from Rudyard Kipling, who absolutely was a gigantic racist. Um, the Jungle Book guy? Yeah, yeah. He was a major proponent of English colonialism and basically believed that the non-white world needed English colonization because it was the only way they could achieve any sense of culture. And when he talked about the white man's burden, what he was referring to is the the burden of having to give culture to these cultureless people. So he was not a real progressive dude. <laughs> if you if you believe in colonialism, then you'll be a man, my son. Right. There's a deep cut for you literature motherfuckers out there. Talk about a hard church to keep going. Right. The church <laughs> of colonialism. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because to bring it back around, Travolta, Travolta's career was, was borderline done. And then Pulp Fiction happened, and that's how you get this, really. Shane, what about you? John Travolta, do you admire him? <sighs> So Travolta's career is a tale of three cities. Like it's, <laughs> it was the best of times and the worst of times. Like, it, oh my god, you've got the first third, which is probably, I don't want to call it his heyday, but like his better times. He does Grease, Saturday Night Fever. You know, it's it's young Travolta working hard, doing what he does. He dances and he's like a lady killer kind of. And then he takes a nosedive, and as you said earlier, he's revived by Pulp Fiction. Tarantino revives 90s Travolta. And then he goes on to do action films and all these things, and you're good. And then he does – and I blame John Travolta and Steven Seagal for ruining Bruce Willis because I think there was some sort of cabal meeting where John and and, – well, really, Steven Seagal probably started this, but he's like, hey – you don't have to work. You just show up. <laughs> you put your face on screen for one day. They give you sandwiches and money, and then you go home. <laughs> and and every 90s action star is now doing this. And and that is the Travolta we know nowadays. Is That and when Travolta gets bored and actually wants to try acting, and then scares you like the fanatic. <laughs> so right? I am a, a very fan of the first two Travoltas and the third I understand because I hope to one day be able to sell myself like that <laughs> he's also in Carrie which I just remember right now but Shane what's that movie oh, where he yeah. plays a Russian hunter and he's with uh, De Niro oh I think it's called the hunter isn't it yeah we're he's like an ex-CIA Russian or he's an ex-KGB Russian yeah, and he takes Robert Nero to go hunt like a tiger, but he's really hunting him. That mm-hmm. one's great. Oh, you know what? I'd completely forgotten about that movie. You guys are right. I think it's called The Hunter. Something and like that. you also the tiger thing, you're mixing Willem Dafoe's Hunter movie, which I thought was Jurassic Park Three. And there's also Nicolas Cage Tiger movie too. Yes. Where he's on a boat and he hunts exotic animals. Oh my gosh. There's a lot, getting, of, tiger, getting, a lot uh, of tiger things. Dude, Nick Cage between 2019 and the end of 2021 must have been in like seven movies. And that's one of them. All of a sudden on my streaming <laughs> services over like an 18 month period, I saw like nine movies that all had Nick Cage. I'm like, where the fuck did these all come from? <laughs> yeah, it's it's every action. 90s action hero is now just making B movies for a million dollars a pop. You know who the one sort of exception is, and I find this to be massively surprising, is fucking Jean-Claude Van Damme, and I'm going to back that up. He did a movie a few years ago where he plays sort of a spoof spoof version of himself. It's called JCVD. It got amazing reviews, did really well at festivals. I really liked it. No one paid attention to it. And then he did one one season of a show for Amazon, I think it was called Jean-Claude Van Johnson, where he plays a sort of different spoof on himself. And it was very funny. 
Uh, yeah, I, he's the only one that seems to be making any effort to like legitimize himself in in older age. No one's paying any attention to it. <laughs> no one gives a uh, fuck. Right. Well, I mean, even when John Claude Van Damme was the hero, like at his height, no one really gave a fuck. Like that's true. <laughs> it was kind of like the diehard action heroes or action people that knew about John Claude Van Damme. Yeah, and like people say, oh, I know Time Cop, but have they seen Time Cop? Right. <laughs> I want to do Time Cop for a pod episode. If everyone is interested, we could do that in another group one. That, 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 or yeah. The Quest with the Roger quest. Moore. See, you guys already did that one, didn't you? No, no. The plan okay. The plan here is to do a podcast on both Bloodsport and The Quest <laughs> in the same episode because they're the same movie. They are yes. the same movie. Yep. <laughs> I won't be invited to that one because I don't know what you guys are talking about. I will gladly sell my services for a nominal fee. <laughs> <laughs> My Travolta movie of discussion is Battlefield Earth Because I actually liked that movie when I was a kid Me too But it was one of those things I was a Scientologist I was surrounded by Scientologists And people were like Battlefield Earth is coming out Let's all go see it All the Scientologists, you know Because John Travolta financed it, etc, etc So I go see it I'm like, yeah, this is cool, I guess there's a lot of movies I got super hyped about and would have told people openly that I really liked as like a 10 to 14 year old that, and I genuinely did like them at the time that as an adult, I'm a little embarrassed about. So, I mean, I, I absolutely, I can understand that. Like, I, I, I don't think you can hold yourself to an adult standard when you're 13. I saw gladiator in theaters. Uh, yeah. I think the following weekend or the previous weekend that I saw battlefield earth. And I remember my mom asking me, which one do I like better gladiator or battlefield earth? And I was like, oh, they're about the same. That's a little sad. <laughs> that is a little sad. <laughs> you know what? That's, that's fair. I saw battlefield earth because my dad was a super Trekkie nerd growing mm. up. And so anything sci-fi that came out, I saw and, we liked Battlefield Earth, but yeah, no, I've, I've seen it Oh as my an god, adult. I've been looking for you, Shane. <laughs> Dude, I like Battlefield Earth. I'll, I'll watch the shit out of Battlefield Earth. I need someone that can join me for a Star Trek First Contact movie review. Because no one I know likes Star Trek. I Losers. like Star Trek enough I would join you on that. In fact, I think First Contact might have been the last Star Trek movie to get a Laserdisc release. Don't take this from me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. Shane no, doesn't I even watch Star Trek. He's so full of shit right now. Fuck <laughs> off. Get out of here. Fuck <laughs> I'll take Fuck this moment hotta. to announce that I am joining the Big Dumb Movie Podcast and <laughs> abandoning that sinking ship known as Wasted Potential. <laughs> Please, I can stop editing this bullshit. I'd be so happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, while we're doing this podcast right now, Hobo Dan's like alone in a room like, anyone come in? <laughs> the funny thing is, I think he's the funniest part of Waste Potential. It's just yeah. fine. <laughs> Does Hobo Dan wear clown makeup? Because that would just make it so much funnier. Like a hobo clown. You know what's funny is uh, he does the uh, Walking Phoenix Joker laugh really well, so it's kind of perfect. <laughs> hobo Dan mirrors many faces. <laughs> oh, fantastic. The funny thing, too, I want to bring up before we start is all three of these people, and I include John Woo as a part of this movie, because he's obviously the director, they have the same career path where their early stuff is like their best. Yeah. And then they hit the nineties and then everyone goes, Oh God, there's, this is too much. And then they, they disappear. <laughs> I'd agree. I think you can actually connect woos back to Van Damme as well. Cause his first American movie was hard target. And that was kind of like, yeah, 
where he started losing his shit. <laughs> like hard boiled is probably his peak, and then like he gets a lot of money, and then he goes way off the deep end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what he had, he had uh, bullet in the head, and the killers, and um, uh, hard boiled. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's one other one in there I'm thinking of, but you're right. After that, it was kind of like, oh, here's Hollywood money, and it sort of, sort of disappeared. He he did the the fight coordinating for a '98 movie called The Replacement Killers. It was Chow Yun Fat's American debut and Antoine Fuqua's directorial debut. Oh, that 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 was the closest thing to an American Hong Kong movie I think has ever really been made, aside from influences like The Matrix. It was kind of interesting. But, and Mission yeah. Impossible too. Yeah, which I think. <laughs> well, you know, I and I think Corey previously in our discussion about the movie described it in his opinion as being the worst of the Mission Impossible movies, and I I can see why people would think that, but I I do think that movie has redeeming moments. I, I don't think it's a steaming pile of garbage. I think it's a an okay movie that that got. I don't know. It's mixed up. I'm 100 percent in your camp, and we can discuss later. But right. I think it got caught up in the the Spider Man issues where like the soundtrack and Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit and all yes. them and it, it got <laughs> caught up in a lot but it, if you watch it today you you never not finish that movie yeah it's and it's not one of those movies you walk away from thinking that was a gigantic steaming pile of, pile of shit you yeah. know was, you may not have loved it but it's not it's not that kind of bad movie i'm just amazed that the franchise continued after that movie like, that seemed like a kind of a fizzle out. Like, yeah. the first one started off good, and then you get the second one, which isn't as good, and it's kind of like, okay, we're going to stop doing this now. The first one, by yeah. far, is my favorite. And that's not to take anything away from the sequels, because some of the sequels have been really cool. But the first one is still my favorite. There's a kind of quiet, classy... It's a spy movie, yeah. to it. Yeah. Hey, hey, Corey, I'm so glad that you and I introduced Shane and Steve here, so then the two of them can talk the entire time we sit here and don't do anything. You want to start a <laughs> podcast called Wasted Podcast? <laughs> yes. Big, dumb, wasted podcast. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Speaking of Steve talking. Because <laughs> I don't do enough of it. <laughs> I think it's about time. Steve, how the hell was Face Off made? All right, so... I'm actually going to make an effort here not to over-talk, partly because the background development for this movie got a little complicated, and as is often the case, some of what appeared on the internet contradicts what I heard the writers and directors say, and there's gaps in the information I was able to collect, and blah, blah, blah. But what I can tell you is this. There are these two writers, Michael Collery and Mike Werb. They co-wrote the script together in 1990, they wrote it as a spec script. A spec script is a script that was not asked for by anyone. It wasn't written in the studio's request. <laughs> Excellent. It's, it's, right? It's a, it's a script that the writers decided to write to see if they could sell it later on. No one asked for this. No one That's asked for exactly this. exactly what I was going to say. No one asked for this. What a surprise. No one wanted this. No one asked right? for it. But by God, did we get it. <laughs> Uh, the two of them have worked together on and off for years, uh, Werb and Collery. They, they also wrote uh, the script for Darkman 3, probably the worst Darkman. They, uh, they also did the script for the 2001 version of Tomb Raider and a Tarzan TV show that they developed. 
Mike Werb wrote the scripts for The Mask with Jim Carrey, and for a 2009 film adaptation of the Tekken video games that I didn't even know existed until like three days ago. I'm sure it's a masterpiece. Oh Steve. yeah, it looks just genuinely unwatchable. Top notch. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so one of these two writers, Mike Werb, is a huge fan of a James Cagney film called White Heat, which is about a cop who infiltrates a prison so that he can get information from a gang. Sounds familiar. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see the connection. <laughs> <laughs> um, he and Collery decided that they wanted to use that movie and the movie Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood as inspiration, and that they wanted to, to combine these ideas into something set in, far in the future. In fact, in the first draft they wrote, they had they included uh, floating cars, and um, the chief of police would have a hologram secretary who looked like Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. um, their original idea for the prison was a floating orb out in the ocean. Mm -hmm. They they also wanted something, according to the two of them, that that made the villain as interesting as the the good guy. So all these ideas kind of coalesced together into what ended up being their first draft uh, for this film, and. Uh, a Werb also apparently knew someone or knew of someone that had been in a hang gliding accident so bad he'd needed facial reconstruction surgery. And that was where the, the face-off part of it came from. They decided that they would combine these all the ideas and the original draft was basically a sci-fi film set in the future about a cop who gets a criminal's face transplanted onto him so that he can infiltrate a prison to get information from a gang and then escape which is obviously not really quite what we ended up with. There's there's a whole bunch of information saying that the script got picked up by a producer named Joel Silver, who we've talked about before. He was involved in a lot of action stuff in the 90s. That Silver's production company took the film to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers liked it enough that, that they wanted to produce it. There's a rumor that John Woo saw the script for the first time in 91 or so. The, that's what the internet says, that he, he'd been shown it by Joel Silver's production company. John Woo, in his commentary track on the disc, says that he doesn't remember seeing the script for the first time until 1993. In either way, either case, Woo saw the script. He, I think, was involved in pre-production for Broken Arrow at the time and declined it pretty much immediately because he felt it was too much of a sci-fi project and he hadn't been doing Western films for long enough to feel comfortable doing a sci-fi film for a Western audience. Racist. Interestingly, from that point forward, Wu became the person they went back to the most often. The movie eventually languished at Warner Brothers. It ended up in development hell and went through a process called Turnaround where they, they try to see if they can get it going again. Paramount and Joel Silver, I'm sorry, Warner Brothers and Joel Silver eventually just said, this is never going to happen with us. Somebody else can pick it up. Michael Douglas's production company got involved along with Paramount, and apparently they shopped other directors and couldn't really find anybody, and they went back to Wu. Wu was approached at least twice, if not three times, depending on which source you're looking at. But I, I think it's especially interesting that he ended up being the one they were chasing the most, because... Uh, the writers in their commentary both stated that at the time they wrote the script in 1990, they had no idea who John Woo was. They'd never heard of him before. In fact, in a moment I think will be dear to Corey and I and that almost no one else may understand, 
the two of them went to the New Beverly Cinema at some point in 1990, which is a revival theater here in L.A. that's actually owned now primarily by Quentin Tarantino. It wasn't at the time. It wasn't at the time, no. And the two of them went to the New Beverly to see a screening of an old film. And before the movie, they saw a trailer for The Killer. And uh, Michael Collery apparently was so taken aback by the trailer he went back again the next night and bought another ticket for a screening of the same movie just so that he could see the trailer a second time. And the two of them went back a week or two later to see the killer being screened at this theater and immediately agreed with each other after the fact that Wu was the type of director they wanted for the movie. But they kept going back to Wu and he kept saying, I'm not interested and I've got this other stuff on my schedule and I don't do sci-fi movies, and, you know, right? This movie's shit. I don't want it. <laughs> right. And um, so at one point while the movie was at Paramount, they end up contracting... Um, uh, cholera. Right? <laughs> yeah, cholera and typhoid. <laughs> um <clears throat> Uh, Joel Cohen. Um, no, not... What is his first name? Now I'm blanking on his first name. The guy that directed uh, Dragonheart. Oh, um, oh but Triple uh, X. Yeah, Triple Rob, Rob Cohen. Cohen. There you Rob go, Rob Cohen. Cohen. Yeah. So Paramount has the movie. They got Rob Cohen in. Rob Cohen was with them for a while. This is. A, a, I'm going to keep going back to this because it's a consistent thing and with other reviews as well where the internet makes one claim and people say otherwise... According to what I saw, I think on IMDb, they're claiming it was John Woo's idea to, to move the timeline of the film. Um, <laughs> a, according to the writers, it was actually while they were working with Cohen that that suggestion first got made, that Paramount actually hired him. They had him on board to direct. He was apparently the first one to say, I think in order to make this work, we need to make it a more contemporary movie. And um, that's that's what right that's what started that spike. And before it really went anywhere, Cohen left to go do Dragonheart. Apparently, got sick of waiting for the movie to be ready, and uh, you know he went on later to do as as we mentioned, uh, uh, first Fast and the Furious and Daylight and the Skulls and Triple X Stealth. Uh, the what was it, the second or third Mummy movie with. Uh, Jet Li in it. The third one. So top top notch movies. <laughs> Just went on to really fucking send it. Dragonheart probably the only really endearing thing he ever worked on. <laughs> or dragon. But apparently once Michael Michael Douglas's production company, I guess, was co-producing with Paramount, once they got involved, that's what really nailed it down. They went back to Wu. Wu was in Canada filming something, maybe Broken Arrow, I can't remember what. Michael Douglas took a group of people, including the writers, up to Canada and basically dragged Wu into a two-hour meeting at the end of a production day and kept him sitting there while they pitched him on this movie and told him how they were resetting it in a contemporary setting and blah, blah, blah. And Wu liked Michael Douglas so much and had been such a huge fan of some of Douglas's other work that he finally just said, you know what, fine, we'll find a way to make it work. I'll talk to you guys about it later. And that's 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 kind of how they they got him. Um, Begrudgingly. They broke yeah. him like a CIA assassin, like just right. waterboarding him. And, and gave him HPV. Having Michael Douglas act like he might be in this film. <laughs> right? And, and that's another one. Like, the internet says that Douglas was one of the actors considered for one of these parts, but that's not substantiated in any of the background stuff that I I watched where, where the people involved with the project were actually 
actually talking that the list of people the internet claims were in line for these parts is insane. The writers actually do say in one of their their interviews that that Stallone and Schwarzenegger were who they initially had in mind when they wrote the oh script, which my is ridiculous. God. <laughs> right? Would have been epic. Think right? about it. We would have finally gotten that big crossover. This would have been the biggest movie of the '90s right? if that happened. Mm-hmm. I just imagine like on the airplane, he's like, "Hey yo, you suck my tongue, huh?" <laughs> and the- no, it would have been Arnold. He would have been the villain. Well, you're going to suck my tongue. Suck it now. <laughs> Do it. Suck it now. Suck my it's tongue. It's not a tumor. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, so the, that that's what they said. They also they also did mention considering Alec Baldwin, Bruce Willis, and Johnny Depp at one point. There's a rumor on the internet that Johnny Depp was actually interested in one of the parts until he read the script and then immediately called his agent back and said, I don't want to do this. Fuck this, I'm doing Nick of Time. <laughs> right? I don't know if it's true or not, but the rumor's out there. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, again, there's, there's also, uh, the internet additionally suggests that Patrick Swayze, Harrison Ford, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Denzel Washington, Wesley Snipes, and Michael Douglas were all considered for parts, although none of that is substantiated in any of the material I actually saw. What if it was like John Travolta and Denzel Washington? I'd be like, uh-oh. <laughs> I think we made a mistake here. <laughs> um, but Wu, Wu said that he was actually attracted personally to the idea of using Travolta and Cage. He said that he'd, he'd fallen in love with Cage as an actor after seeing Leaving Las Vegas, which is kind of easy to understand. He also says that as a teenager in Hong Kong, He'd been really fond of Saturday Night Live and was fascinated with uh, Travolta's character in the film. Saturday Night Fever. Or Saturday Night Fever, excuse me, yeah, that's right. And uh, Which doesn't have to do with this Saturday Night Live skit that got me into an action right? film. <laughs> Boy, some of those SNL movies have been unwatchable. <laughs> uh, Except for it's Pat, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> right? <laughs> and McGruber. There's a couple of other, that's basically all I really know about really the background of the production. There's a couple other quick casting notes I thought were worth mentioning. Um, another rumor on the internet was that Joan Allen was John Woo's first choice for Archer's wife. He never says so explicitly, but he, he does say that, at least that I'm aware of, but he, he did, did say that he really respected her, and they mentioned that she really wanted this role because she mostly had only ever done drama stuff and wanted an opportunity to be in something with a lot of bullets, which I think is funny. I mean, or, or comedy. My understanding is that the the writers really pushed to get her on. Yeah, I, I so which may be the case. Um, what else? Uh, uh, Dietrich, the bald guy who's one of Caster's goons, is played by Nick Cassavetes, whose yeah. father was an exceptionally famous director. Dominique Swain, the daughter, she filmed this and an HBO adaptation of Lolita, a book called Lolita at the same time, basically. <laughs> the irony. Right? And they were they were her dual debuts. They came out within months of each other. I have a question for you, Steve. So since you did the extensive background information, did they rewrite this when they got Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and make it absolutely fucking insane? Or was that already in the script? Oh, you you can't control those two. Those two wild animals gone on camera and just started right. going. But the dialogue is insane. I, so it's interesting. I, I, I think it was really, based on what I heard them say, it was an evolving thing. And they had a little bit of it in mind when they were doing the rewrites, but didn't really get all of it there until the moment they were working on set. There's a 
early on in one of the commentary tracks, when they get to the part where Nick Cage as a priest is dancing to the choir yeah. music, one of the writers literally just refers to that moment as Nick Cage doing his thing. Oh, so I okay. and right, I got the implication oh. that there was a lot of that. In fact, they mention it later on as well, and I can bring it up later. But yeah, I, I mm-hmm. think I think that some of it they had in mind. But based on the way they were talking, like in the Blu-ray commentary, it sounds to me like. They just kind of let some of that happen. And apparently mm. Nick Cassavetes was allowed to write most of his own dialogue. So, <laughs> And I know that they did allow Nick Cage to do a lot of improvisation. Yeah. As where John Travolta's method was more by the book, talk to the director, how should I deliver this? What should I do here? But Nick Cage brought a lot of himself. So right. I think, you know, that, that brings the batshit aspect to the movie, Ronnie. Okay. I may as well mention it now real quick. There's that moment later in the movie where he's supposed to be Archer wearing Caster's face and he's laying on a couch and he's talking about taking Archer's face off. And he does the gesture with his hands and he, he's doing oh. this slow. And Nick Cage ad-libbed that whole thing and apparently he actually went on for like five full minutes on set and they just let him do it and then they cut it down to the parts they thought worked the best yes it's, it's, it's painfully obvious that's improvised because they keep saying face off face off <laughs> face off but face off i'm like oh no so once we kidnap super cop then what i'd like to take his his face off You want to take his face? Yes. His face. Oh. The eyes, nose, skin. It's coming off. The face. Off. His face. Off. One of the writers, at least in the commentary track I heard, said that they loved the fact that he'd done it because it's always a difficult thing for the writers to work the name of the movie in and the actors just did it for them. You don't need to work the name of the movie in. They were actually (laughs) getting pushed by the studio to change the name. Yeah. So the fact that that happened allowed them to fight for the name face-off that we got ultimately in the end. They didn't like the slash. Oh my god. This is like Franz Ferdinand firing the shot in Austria that created World <laughs> War One. Like, just little what? things that happen that just end everything. It's exactly like that it's World <laughs> War One event. This movie, things you just don't know are going to lead to bigger things. <laughs> right. Sorry to derail your your uh, your train there, Steve. No, 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 absolutely. I I end up going on for too too long if people don't do that. I'm loving it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one other one I thought was kind of interesting because Conair has come up. Uh, Nick Cage shot this and Conair essentially back to back. In fact, the day he showed up to shoot the scene where he kills Archer's kid, he, he'd come from shooting other scenes for Conair. So I think that's kind of cool that he did the two of these. And they came out like three weeks apart from one another, which is pretty cool. And uh, there's some other some other notes like that I'll pepper in as, we time, as time goes on. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Right. Thank you very much. We are going to dive into the movie Face Off. <laughs> Ronnie, how does this movie begin? Oh, the God. Okay, Jesus, this is so much Don't pressure. Fuck um, this up for us. <laughs> I'm going to fuck this up. Okay, so just in full disclosure, the first time I saw this movie was yesterday. 
Oh, so well, I came in this monster. one like a brand new babe, a virgin, just didn't know what I was getting, and then I was very confused. So the opening shot is John Travolta is face molesting a child with a Jonathan Taylor Thomas yes. bowl cut, Fair. and then they're going around in a carousel, and I'm just like, who let their child do this? And then... Then you see a porno stash and Nick Cage sitting on a hill with a some kind of sniper rifle that Shane can probably say right now because he's a terrorist himself. And he's um, aiming at the child. Part-time amateur. It's my turn to shine. Fuck off. Go. And so then so he's aiming to uh, shoot John Travolta. And instead of shooting him in the head, he shoots him in the back because that's obviously where terrorists and hitmen shoot. And he shoots John Travolta. And the bullet goes through. John Travolta's very... Um, beautiful beautiful chest and then murders his child and the entire time there is beautiful gospel music it's in slow motion and the opening is so serious that i was laughing uncontrollably <laughs> because you have nicholas cage at the porno stash and he's just like being nicholas cage and john travolta is molesting a child and it's just the weirdest thing and it's like with this beautiful operatic music and it's like what the fuck is going on taking itself quite seriously oh my god yeah now i will give credit to john woo he will not make a movie that doesn't have his key signatures he just won't yes. do it like if there's not doves slow-mo flipping and jumping sideways and shooting dual wielding guns it is not a john woo film and he won't do it like, yeah <laughs> all the hallmarks are present throughout the film it's so funny that they try to make Nick Cage this sexual, hot, assassin man. <laughs> Until they don't. And he is not... Number one, he's not a sex symbol. I don't think you've ever looked at Nick Cage as a sex symbol. Maybe I'm wrong. You're so wrong. I'm on board with that. That He, he doesn't fit the mold. He's done other movies where he's supposed to be that way, too. And it just... His saggy like face is like <laughs> doesn't line up with that. He, yeah, that's not who he is. And like... I could picture Brad Pitt on that grassy knoll with a mustache, you know, snacking and with his sniper rifle and then shooting and you thinking that's actually cool. You go, oh, that's yeah. badass. But when Nick Cage does it, you're like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> you're like, right. what is this? That kind of reason my first question is how often is Nicolas Cage a bad guy in movies? Oh, man. I actually I don't think a lot. Not yeah. n not a lot come to mind. Yeah, because I was trying to think. I was like, my Nicolas Cage filmography isn't, you know, the most extensive. But I was like, I don't think I've ever seen him as a bad guy. He's always like kind of like, um, you know, in between kind of like the anti-hero, but never like the full bad guy. I mean, even in this film, he turns into the good guy. Literally. Yeah. So Sean Archer is John Travolta. His son is dead, Steve. Yep. Oh and then God. we get six years later, he is on a, uh, I think, an anti-terrorism task force of some kind, isn't he? Yeah, and boy, does he make it clear through expository, di expository dialogue as quickly as possible and in the most stiff and awkward possible way. This is one of the worst on-screen debuts for a character in the history of film. And I kind of like this movie. But this first moment with Travolta is schlocky, stiff, and overacted in the worst possible way. And he goes on this rant about how we're a task force so secret, we snap our fingers and nothing happens. Oh and my it's, God. it's right, it's terrible. The dialogue is terrible, his delivery is terrible. 
the entire thing is there to let you know that they're apparently waiting for information from the LAPD, but the LAPD can't be bothered to get back to them. How it's possible the FBI has any difficulty getting info from the LAPD, I, I have no idea. Seems crazy to me. <laughs> they don't need to know what your task force does. It doesn't matter how secret it is. You just tell them you're from the FBI. Here's what I need. Any word from the LAPD intelligence? If there is such a thing? Not yet, sir. Of course not. Because we're a covert anti-terrorism team that is so secret that when we snap our fingers, nothing happens. Well, I wonder, like, if it's a real clerical issue when you're that secret. Like, you go to the LAPD and you're like, I'm from the CI-99 Sector 7. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, fuck yourself. Provide some identification. Fuck! We're so right. secret we don't have identification. <laughs> this is also like pre-Patriot Act too. Yeah, and like yeah. that the FBI is the one leading this top secret. Like, it's so funny to think about the tears of secrecy. <laughs> I don't think it's the FBI that's leading this task force, but... And I don't think they would put the guy whose kid was murdered by the guy. That seems right. like a conflict of interest. Conflict of interest? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, we're letting this obviously massively obsessive person with a very clear personality disorder whose son was murdered by the guy they're hunting lead the task force. It, it seems very, very clever. And the boss makes a point multiple times of telling him in one of the big movie cliches is that, you know, you're, you're, you're crazy, you're out of control, you're doing your job wrong, I'm taking your badge from you if you don't calm down, blah, blah, blah. But God damn it, you get results. <laughs> results, right? <laughs> this is like one of two scenes where John Travolta isn't boring. He just starts yelling for no reason. And, and, the, <laughs> and that's his personality is terrible dad who yells a couple times. Sean, look. What? Why don't you just give him a little break, okay? We'll take a break when the case breaks, okay? <laughs> He's like, I haven't touched a face in years. Dude, that's another thing. Why? Why does he need to caress every face he gets near? It's so fucking weird. Full disclosure, I created a drinking game for myself that I had to drink every time someone touched somebody's face. Caressed like gently. You must have been blasted. Oh, it got out of control. Even the kids <laughs> touch each other with their fucking hands. <laughs> like everybody pets everybody. And I was like, who wrote this in? Yes. Who did Why this? Why is there so much petting in this movie? I don't get it. It's like, so this is a side note. I watched 12 Monkeys the other day, and in it, it's a great movie, but the lady in one of the scenes goes, she's, instead of saying advertisement, she says advertisement. Advertisement. Advertisement, yeah. It's just an advertisement. It's a Britishism. You're like, why doesn't the director go cut, cut, the fuck is that? D run it again, stop it. I know exactly which scene you're talking about where, where Cole gets her in the car, in, yep. her, in her Jeep. And, and he's yeah, talking and, to the radio. And like, the advertisement is a the normal pronunciation in the UK. So if that actress, what, that's not Mary Stewart, Master Antonio. I can never remember her name, but... If, if if she were English, I, it would seem normal to me, but you're right. In that context, I always thought, like, why why does she use the British pronunciation because for that it's word? directed by Terry Gilliam, though. It's true. But it's the same thing here, where you think the director, John Woo, would go, well, stop, stop. What was that? Don't don't touch their face. Just just hug them. Like, just... It's in Travolta's contract. <laughs> you don't need to touch every face. Well... This, this is the exact thing he did to Idina Menzel at the Oscars that one time. He just grabbed her face and started touching it. He's a, he's a face toucher. <laughs> yeah, I, like... Wait, he I, touched Maureen's face from Rent? Right. You're goddamn right he did. 
He touched Elsa herself. <laughs> Even as a kid, I wouldn't have wanted a grown-up doing that to me. If one of my aunts or uncles had done that to me, I would have gone back to my parents and been like, yo, they're petting my face. Yeah, Something's like, going on. Yeah, yeah, something weird's going on. I think Uncle Joe wants to molest me. Like, they can't babysit me anymore. With <laughs> Uncle John, we don't address it. Let it happen. It's fine. <laughs> right, exactly. Uncle John's hugs last two seconds too long. <laughs> right. just, yeah, he, he grabs butts and goes, oh. Dude, I mean, and that's really the most shocking thing of all. Of, that there's, if, if that movie came out this year, it would get canceled immediately. And I don't even mean that as a shitty jibe at liberal politics. I just mean he sexually assaults that woman and nothing <coughs> happens. Everybody is sexually assaulted. And like, it's... We're getting ahead of ourselves. The <laughs> inmates right? are running the asylum in this movie. Like, John Woo has no control. Or maybe the producer has no control because John Woo's out of control too. Like <laughs> slow motion here, people are flipping here, jumping out of windows. Like this movie is, it is literally a project on if you let three crazy people run away with a movie, this yes. is what you get. Right. It's like you give a madman a pile of crack and a loaded gun. <laughs> it's bedlam. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, Caster Troy is Nicolas Cage, and he is. In the beginning of this section, at least, he's in the Catholic priest outfit, I guess, yeah. to uh, put himself into this Catholic convention that there, they have going on. It's an international choir convention, and and the, the building they're in is part of the Los Angeles Convention Center. I mean, Ronnie, what did you think about him hamming it up here? This is like some of the best, I think, early on, right? Okay, so this is seven minutes into the film, and I didn't know what I was getting into. So I'm like watching this, like this is super serious. Is, is this going to be like, like one of those very melodramatic, serious films? And then Nicolas Cage walks out from putting the the Sinclair, which says the Sinclair is hot, which is this wonderful '90s trope of technology just says things. So he yes. walks out and he starts doing a, a metal head banging to the choir. And then he sexually assaults a, I think, a 16 year old girl, saying he doesn't like Jesus, but he likes something. I didn't, I didn't get what he was saying. He said something really inappropriate to her, then licked her face, I think, and walked away. And I was like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? I never really enjoyed the Messiah. In fact, I think it's fucking boring. But your voice makes even a hack. Candle. Seem like a genius. This is after the typical 90s trope of terrorist splurge on everything for the bomb. Like, <laughs> instead of just like a manual pad, it's a touchscreen. And like with flames, and you're like, what? Why'd you splurge for the touchscreen? And adding Travolta to that mix, one of the next couple of projects he did after this was Swordfish, and it's the most over, unnecessarily overcomplicated plan in the history of movies. <laughs> like, in, in bombs that have ball bearings in them. Like, Yeah, but you get those titties. Them titties, <laughs> though. $100,000 titties. And a flying bus. <laughs> I have never seen Swordfish. God, oh my God. what do you do I, with your time? I don't what? watch action films. I watch things involving rape, which is why I watch this movie. Oh, okay, yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah, this is right up your alley. I know, right? <laughs> the only Asian director he's interested in is Takashi Miike. <laughs> I don't get that reference, sorry. You're such a oh my loser. God. You need to, if you I mean, if you want to get real rapey and violent, you need to watch Mike's film. Start with Ichi the Killer. I don't, I don't seek it out. They seek me, okay? <laughs> Some sort of weird attraction. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, so it, it starts off in the LA Convention Center, and like, the whole time I wrote in my notes, like, this movie reminds me of eight other movies, and I think it's because <laughs> like, from 94 to 98, no one knew how to make an action movie that wasn't the same. Like, this reminds right. me of The Peacemaker, Broken Arrow, what now? I Con guess Air. the same director. Yeah, Con Air. <laughs> like, it's always the ticking bomb that 90s action hero has to link up with a woman and stop. It's a sign of how that industry works, and you can apply the exact same thing to music and to other industries as well. It I sounds like the same score, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had this argument with somebody who's a huge fan. If anyone else in the group is a fan, it's fine. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but, like... I, I'm, I'm getting real tired of hearing people claim that Kanye West is a genius and their only evidence is that a bunch of other people copied him after his first two albums came out. I'm like, no, that's just how the music industry works. It's how the movie industry works, too. Once anyone lands on something stylistically or whatever that audiences very clearly like, everyone else jumps on that bandwagon to copy it and ride it until it's burnt out because why wouldn't you just go with the thing you already know people are going to buy? Like and, and absolutely, yeah, the movie studios do it all the time. It's the reason you get chunks of movies from different studios that are about the same thing. It's how we got two asteroid movies at the same time and two Mars movies at the same time. And yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. A dozen movies pattern after each other. And I think the most responsible party there was Michael Bay. It's why every uh, podcast has four friends shooting the shit and interviewing uh, some sort of professional. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and getting drunk, it's doing drugs. <laughs> Right. Oh my god. <laughs> I've got an idea, guys. I'm gonna pitch it. Uh. The movie experience. <laughs> but yeah. Uh. So Steve, Caster Troy, who is Nicolas Cage, he boards a plane to I guess get out of Dodge after he has planted this bomb, right? Yeah, yeah, so he's gone to the convention center and planted a bomb, and um, he's now meeting up with his brother and some of their goonies at an airfield. Goonies are there? <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, hey, chunk and everything. <laughs> hey, you good? They never say die. <laughs> right, they never <laughs> say die. And, uh, yeah, so he meets them up. I, there's there's an implication that uh, they... they go back to a couple times that him and his brother are incredibly close and that he's crazy protective of the younger brother. The two of them are named Castor and Pollux, which is a reference to two people from Greek mythology who were, were half-brothers, and the two of them, one of them was originally immortal and the other wasn't, and they wanted to be together forever, so they made a deal with the gods to share their immortality, but the exchange with it for it was that they became a constellation. Um, so the two of them would live forever as stars. I see. It's official. Ronnie likes this movie now. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's why they got the names, Castor and Troy. But There's yeah, so, allegories here, man. Yeah, exactly. This, this is high-level shit. <laughs> right. Can you please stop giving legitimacy to this fucking movie? <laughs> right? I'm sorry. Well, then fine. I won't tell you that the Constellation Gemini is the one they're supposed to be. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you, but I will tell you. <laughs> Thank God right. you never told us. <laughs> I don't know what I do with that information. So yeah, I mean, right off the bat, we're establishing that uh, uh, you know he's close to his brother, and they're making a getaway. He also makes a reference to the fact that his brother paid for the plane, and that he the brother shouldn't have done that. That's what they have the goons for, because that way they remain disconnected, and that's 
it's it's supposed to be and i mean adding more legitimacy i guess it's supposed to be how the fbi found out they were there in the first place that that they discovered that that Pollux troy had booked this plane from this airfield so they go chasing after them this scene is really a setup mostly a to establish that the brothers are close b to establish that nicholas cage carries gold guns with him everywhere and viagra and chicken <laughs> and looks like a right. hong kong mafia boss yes um he's got special sunglasses and uh that this is going to be their getaway and and then now we know how the fbi found them and it we're, we're building up to what is ultimately a chase scene here right one of many the the <laughs> most ridiculous okay sorry i apologize the first most ridiculous chase scene ever where the actors have 40 40 vision and can see each other from so far away <laughs> <laughs> right you've just never had a nemesis ronnie you don't understand <laughs> I can see his uh, his receding hairline. It must be Nick Cage. <laughs> that, that friar monk cut. <laughs> I could see. I know it's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking I, the the plane chase is not one of my favorites ever, but it was a big thing to coordinate. They actually did destroy that plane, Good. and they they got the entire thing in one take. Oh. There's an internet rumor they used 13 cameras. Wu remembers in his commentary using six, but either way, there were at least six Wu cameras set up. <laughs> right? I was going to say, everyone did so much coke on this, they probably don't remember anything. <laughs> this film, if anything, is an ode to 90s stuntmen. Like, yes. these men, who were paid $2 an hour, <laughs> did such incredible things for this film and I'll all really get into it on the boat chase scene at the end mm -hmm. but the fact that they had a helicopter smash a plane and <laughs> then a Humvee almost run into a plane like this this shit is wild we risk everybody's lives on this film oh yeah in fact really with the I guess I could have waited till we get there but the boat scene especially there's a moment where where Caster Archer and Caster's body whatever is is being drug along the boat oh, yeah. uh, by a chain and he's kind of water skiing on his feet and apparently the stuntman who did that literally almost died he got one leg pulled under the boat at one point and couldn't walk for like a week afterward because of the damage it did oh yeah Wu remembers pulling him out of the water and that his leg was so swollen his pants had to be cut off of him. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, crazy what they did. And yeah, they got this whole thing in one take with at least six cameras. They really destroyed the plane at the end by smashing it into a... A, a fireworks factory? Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, uh, the two writers commented during the commentary track that they had to rewrite this... I, I don't know that this number is really accurate. He may have just been using it for the sake of example, but one of the writers remembered having to rewrite the scene something like 10 times because they had multiple different ways this was going to play out and Wu wasn't happy with most of them. In one of them, he says that the fight was going to culminate at the top of the control tower and that caster was going to fall off of it and Wu didn't like that idea. Um, so it, it, it ends up with the plane exploding and the two of them having their fight in, inside the hangar. See, this, like you guys said, is some 90s-ass shit right I forgot here. to mention, I wanted to add one other asterisk there. One of their other ideas was that Caster would fall into what the writer describes as cryo-tanks and would end up being frozen. Oh, top-notch. <laughs> right? Like Demolition top Man? Notch. Yes! <laughs> you already got that movie. It's called T2. <laughs> God damn it. But the action scene is so 90s in that... 
of course they make it into some like you know industrial like warehouse environment right yeah and then you get the constant bits of slow-mo and that's really Wu's trademark oh. coming into play is the slow-mo with the gun swings and the diving while you fire a gun from each hand and it, this is this is where the killer comes back Wu jizzed all sure. over this movie. It's like you yes. can't stop seeing Wu. Like every time there's a corner, someone is up against it with the opposing force <laughs> also against the same corner. Like <laughs> right, <laughs> just around the bend. Every time someone has one gun, you're like, it's only a matter of time before there's two. Like, there's, <laughs> but like, uh, there's a couple things with this. So Nick Cage goes in the plane and begins to immediately sexually harass another person. You know, I can, uh, eat a peach for hours. Um, if I were to send you flowers, where would I, uh... <laughs> no, wait, let me rephrase. If I were to let you suck my tongue, would you be grateful? <laughs> he goes... I can eat a peach for hours. hours. And this keeps coming up over and over again, this whole peach obsession, which, does that mean ass? I don't know. But so then... Yeah, he eats ass. <laughs> for hours. That's what it is. And when he goes, Good for him. what if you suck my tongue? <laughs> and then <laughs> Nick Cage sticks his enormously long tongue. The guy's got a cobra <laughs> tongue that he just sticks out. And the that poor actress... <laughs> just shoves it right in her mouth like a professional. She got in there. I was like, what is this? And John Woo's just going, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite touches in the film is later on when Archer masquerading as Caster meets the Gina Gershon character mm -hmm. and she's angry and she she's talking about how the two of them never had a real conversation and the only thing he ever had to say to her was suck my tongue. I, I, <laughs> what is this tongue sucking? Keeps coming back to right? us. But it keeps going. And the peaches, it is so weird. But it all culminates with, I wrote here, Code of Justice 247-6, criminal apprehension. Kick a jet engine <laughs> to incapacitate criminal. <laughs> he, instead of like arresting him or having some like kung fu scene or something like physical there's like this weird gunfight that it culminates with him getting blasted and i thought that's what was going to melt his face or something but no it blasts mm -hmm. him into a funnily enough you're not that far off according to what the writers said in the commentary one of aside from the fact that Wu didn't like what they had been doing one of the reasons they kept rewriting this fight scene is because they needed a way to end it with uh, caster being comatose and they decided that having him get get blasted by the jet engine was the way they were going to accomplish that. yeah that's the professional way to go yeah <laughs> and it's also very strange to think that in a hangar no one else was in they just had a jet engine sitting around connected to fuel on a stand yeah uh, like yeah. yeah not a not an osha <laughs> violation at all no <laughs> and it's also a jet engine that's much too small for the plane that it's anywhere near so like what's it there for but yeah <laughs> it's and, and there are so many FBI agents that die that no one gives oh, a God, flying yeah. fuck about. Like, there's no funerals. <laughs> like, we lose... If one cop dies in the line of duty, it's like the whole state and nation knows. But FBI guys oh, yeah. are just blown away <laughs> at every second <laughs> of this movie. 
Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because later, like when when they don't immediately execute Nicolas Cage, I'm like, why would you not do this? Because he's killed so many people, <laughs> he's responsible for so many more deaths later. Yeah, it's like the Bin Laden raid where he got shot 36 <laughs> times in, mm-hmm. in apprehension. <laughs> you, you would think at this point it would be a much bigger mission. I'm not saying either of these incidents was handled properly, but if you look at what happened at like Ruby Ridge or Waco, the FBI sent big teams in to get these people. And they didn't make it out. No. <laughs> <laughs> they burned in an accidental fire. <laughs> right, accidental. But yeah. <laughs> now we'll get canceled. Oh, there it is. Right. Because of our Waco theory. The Waco fanatics are going to come after us. <laughs> right. We insulted the Scientologists, and now the Wacos. Oh, no. The Waco fanatics didn't make it. Yeah. The, the Branch Davidians, yeah. Branch They're still running strong, I think. <laughs> oh, I feel like Corey has an extensive knowledge of cults. I've, I must pick <laughs> right. your brain some more sometimes. <laughs> uh, I am big into cults, it's true. Uh, so, Castor Troy, Nicolas Cage is. I think he's presumed dead. They don't necessarily say if he lives or if he dies quite yet. We get that information shortly later. No, he says Elvis has left the building, implying he's dead. Oh, I thought he was just talking about literally Elvis has left the building. Uh Elvis died that same day. (laughs) It was a hard day for crime. (laughs) At the office, though, Sean Archer, John Travolta finds out that the job isn't necessarily done though because they find a floppy disk i think it's, it's a, a zip disk okay <laughs> fuck off. he's got a no no i just think this is fascinating he's got a fucking zip drive set up on his nobody was using zip. i had one at home i was the only person i knew that had one nobody <laughs> used zip drives the fbi didn't have it <laughs> i mean i'm sure they did but who the fuck was using zip drives also it was just porn it had nothing on it it was just, it was just a porno it was just a... It's just him and Gina Gershon. Yeah, yeah. it was a sex tape that he, he made. <laughs> that Archer watched over and over again. I got the Pam and Tommy tape pretty early. Um, so so basically, so for some reason, they somehow obtain a, a zip drive, floppy disk, whatever you want to call it, uh, technology-wise, of a potential terrorist plot. They're going to obviously blow up the LA Convention Center. So then they're like, uh-oh, how are we going to do this? So they try to... Um, interrogate two of Castro Troy's cronies about it and that's really quick and then they go well we have no more options anymore so then they get to the plot of the film which is they can take his face off what if you could walk into air one prison and give Pollux a nice big brotherly hug as Castro Troy I have no idea what you're talking about let me try Malcolm Walsh. I run the bio cover unit for special ops. I know who you are. But you don't know what I can do. Uh, Physical alteration, augmentation. Dr. Walsh can alter the likeness, even the voice of a government witness. I think you'll recognize his patient. This is a state-of-the-art morphogenetic template. The inside is modeled on your skull. The outside exactly like Troy's. Then we fit his face on top. Not a replica, but the real thing. Then we simply connect the muscles, tear ducts, and nerve endings. So you want to take his face and mine? Borrow. The procedure's completely reversible. You think that I want to do this? (laughs) No. No. There's no one else, Sean. No! Sweet Jesus. Sweet (laughs) Jesus. 
I think they suggest this to him vaguely once before he That's does the right. interrogation. Yeah, and he, he's like, no, I can get the info from these people. And then he proceeds to break a whole bunch of laws in regards to how long, how you're allowed to interrogate people. And put guns in people's faces while interrogating them. Yeah. <laughs> he makes one guy shit his pants, and then he holds a gun right to Dietrich's eye socket after hitting him. And then they eventually get back CCH Pounder's characters like, you should do this face swap thing. My favorite thing about this... <laughs> My this, favorite this, app. Right? <laughs> My favorite part of this scene, the second time they have the conversation, is that, that Archer's reaction, he specifically says, you're asking me to lie to my family and to break the law. But earlier during his... Son of his, a bitch, I mean. Right? <laughs> it's your call, Sean. This is our, not your plan. No, this is a black bag operation. Strictly off the books. You can't tell Lazaro, and you can't tell your wife. Oh, God. What are you asking me to do? Okay, let's see. You're asking me to break the law, risk my neck, and you're asking me to put in the dark all the people that love me and trust me. I'll do it. Earlier in the movie, during his gunfight with Castor, he specifically tells Castor that he doesn't care if he dies because he doesn't feel like he has anything to live for, which to me means he doesn't give a shit about his wife and daughter, so clearly he's not worried about his family. And he also had just spent several minutes, as was already pointed out, beating up and assaulting and holding guns to the head of people he was interrogating. So I, I find it odd that in this scene where he gets asked to do the face swap, he's upset about the idea of being asked to lie to a family he clearly doesn't give a shit about, and that he's being asked to break the law when he's already done so a lot. <laughs> like, it, what do this you... This is kind of your thing. Yeah, here. this is like what you do. If this is going to be suggested to anyone, you're the one. You're the guy. Yeah. Which shows why his boss was so confused why he wouldn't do it. It's just like, this seems right up your alley. I, I don't well, see... I <laughs> oh, and uh, we skip past really quickly. John Travolta goes home after they think he's. They think this is really weird. The intelligence about the Nick, Nicholas Cage being alive or dead is very unclear because he's dead, then he's alive, and he's dead, and everyone thinks he's dead. But then how do they know he's dead? He's actually alive. But he goes back. Why home. are they keeping his body alive? I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. They take his face off and they keep his body alive. Like why? That doesn't make what sense. Do you need him for? It's like Bin Laden. He's not actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> Same with JFK and Tupac. Yeah. So, so, so they go back home to Nicholas Cage. And like, God damn it. John Travolta's house. And we meet the most patient woman that's ever been on planet Earth. And then his goth stripper of a daughter. Because they got to introduce <laughs> the family. Because, like you said, he doesn't give a shit about them until he gives a shit about them at some point, maybe. Let's, yeah. let's dive into the family dynamics here. Because <laughs> one of the first things his wife says to him when he's having a trouble, like he's feeling a scar or whatever, he goes, "If it was, I always want to move it to the left just an inch, you know? Like the scar's placement haunts me because Mikey would be alive. And then she goes, but you wouldn't be. And I was like, what <laughs> fuck kind of statement? Like, I fuck you, guy. I don't fuck Mikey. <laughs> like, like what, fuck Mikey, you're here. Like, what kind don't of Don't worry statement? about the kid. We still have this mostly loveless, non-sexual <laughs> yeah, marriage. What would be like, <laughs> you know, like, you think she would just hug him, you know, or be like, you know, we can't control things. But instead, she's like, fuck that kid. 
I mean, you're still here, bro. You're still kicking. I'm much happier having a dysfunctional marriage yeah. with you than I would having the kid instead. Our weird <laughs> daughter would not have a dad today, which would probably do her better like than, than her current situation. Well, she'll get a better dad. Yeah, yeah. They apparently originally wrote the setup to that scene is the, the daughter having stolen a police car, like from a car wash. And I guess the studio executives didn't like that the character had stolen a police car. So they had to rewrite it. And that John Blue <laughs> blew up half of LA and that police car still was seen. <laughs> the movie's already two and a half hours long. We can't keep doing this. <laughs> and let's face it. She's like the least important character. They keep trying to like move her in, but she's just basically there for like, John Travolta to be a badass at points. Yeah, and also make us yeah. really, really, really uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I feel like if you remove the scene near the end with the knife in Travolta's leg, that, like, otherwise there's no reason at all for her to be there. I feel like her they wrote her in specifically so they'd have a way to set that ending up. I have a, a slightly different take on that, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. Okay. All right. Yeah, but I have more to offer. I want to talk about Special Ops's plan here. <laughs> Do the face swap. <laughs> Ronnie, there's a special procedure that has to be uh, undertaken here. Technology so advanced, it's limited to this one facility, I believe, right? Yeah, it says we... My my brain start, starts hurting. I, I, when, like, when this happened, I was like, like, I don't need to know the science behind this. Why are you bullshitting me? But it's some kind of specialized <laughs> thing where they can... I guess they're making more ears, or they're making body parts and like like skin grafting. That's like reminds me of like the South Park episode where they do like the like the penis on the mouse. Guys, get my flashbacks of that episode. <laughs> there was a a real real moment during the mid '90s where scientists got a human ear to yeah. grow on the back of a mouse, and that's where the idea for that came from. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So then they go to the secret ops facility, which is super funny later. I'll get to. But then the and they say, well, what we could do is. Fuck up your hairline, mess up your face, make you look like Nicolas Cage, and we'll cut up your your face. But then we can, don't worry, we can put it back on, no big deal. I'm like, I wouldn't believe you for a goddamn second. Then they say, stretching <laughs> someone else's skin over your skull is not going to make you look like them. <laughs> you just look like Leatherface, right? I wrote in my notes, nothing about this procedure seems short term. No, <laughs> no, or reversible. <laughs> He's like, you see, we clip your nerve endings. And we're just going to give you a haircut, which, by the way, they do the haircut inside the operatory where they're also performing surgery. Mm -hmm. Right. Which the doctors makes... are multi-skilled. Yeah, they well, are professional stylists And, you know, well. the, there's nothing you'd want more in a room where you're removing people's faces than a bunch of floating hair. Like, that's, that's great for a surgical environment. But And once again, it's kind of like uh, the this branch of the FBI is so secretive, just like this ops facility is so secretive that no one knows about it and there's no like paper trail so that later when Nicolas Cage burns it to the ground no, no one knows what's going on <laughs> until it doesn't until yeah, it's I known know. but I can just picture the writers slowly slitting their wrists with a butter knife as they watch this <laughs> scene because like as a futuristic movie if this movie was taking place like a thousand years in the future or 300 years in the future and they're like we're gonna clone this bad guy and you're gonna control his clone like then you can create circumstances where he's trapped inside the clone kind of thing, right? So, like, this yeah. face, that 
is interesting because you you get rid of all the disbelief. When you're saying the same people that gave Pam Anderson her tits are going to swap <laughs> your face onto someone else, it's like, it's hard to really buy it because, like, plastic surgery is so great. And you're like, I don't think so. Yeah, they're like, can we see some of your previous work and it's all boob jobs and, like, a photo book? <laughs> like, to, to, to your point, here's where it gets especially funny because I agree with you, but... The writers were allowed on set basically every single day. They actually credited Wu for being much nicer about that than normal. And in their commentary, they raved about how much they loved this scene. They raved about loving the set. They raved about loving the way the scene played out. They thought it was all super cool and are totally happy with it. I I agree with your assessment. I would also go as far as to say that I was going to save this till the end, but I will pepper the one little comment then. If this movie had been about a cop who gets swapped into a criminal's body and then goes progressively insane after ending up being trapped in it, it would have been a much more interesting movie. Oh, I wrote that. I was like, why do we need a ticking clock? I was like, this has potential to be kind of an interesting idea about being in someone else's body, like a possession. Right. And the psychology of it, I almost think they should have rewritten it that way and then given it to David Cronenberg. It would have been a really, really That's interesting movie. Jesus. It kind of reminds me of like, <laughs> kind of like Hollow Man where like Kevin Bacon goes up the deep end because like the, the whole procedure fucks with his brain and whatnot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you put the good guy in the, in, in the body of a criminal he's been obsessing over his whole life. Somebody, a cop who has a compulsive personality to begin with, and then just watch him unravel living this guy's life. And they kind of get into that later, but they really don't, which we'll get, I'll explain, like, what's frustrating, yeah. Yeah, they skim it. You talked about Cronenberg. I mean, there are some grotesque aspects to this surgery. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the dummies even look like the actors are supposed to be. Sometimes oh. they don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that they use the screen monitors to, like, to show you. I think that saves a lot of the the poor prosthetics, because, like, in the background, you see the, the faces on a very grainy kind of 90s monitor so it kind of helps you like okay so it kind of hides the imperfections a little bit sometimes the nick cage dummy looks like uh mark (laughs) rolston you know from uh, shawshank yeah no i think you're right they at least did a nice job of of covering it so you don't notice too much of the the, the problems until later when you get a close up of Nicolas Cage to the glasses and it looks like someone just put like jam on his face and said that looks good enough <laughs> that'll do Wu and the special effects guys apparently wanted more than that but Nick Cage apparently was so disgusted by the makeup they originally had made up for him that he demanded he be allowed to spend as little time as possible in it and did not want there to be any reflective surfaces in which he would see himself so they, they, the sunglass thing was like the compromise. <laughs> God. That'd be fun if Nicolas Cage is, is just walking around kind of like a mummy with his face kind of half wrapped the entire time and, and just yelling and doing, shooting shit too. <laughs> Give me a mirror. That's the, the one thing is when he wakes up with his face off, I was like, number one, you would go back into a coma from the sheer yeah. agonizing pain of exposed nerve endings. Like, yes. But not only that, he's smoking and... And talking, yeah. I was like, he doesn't have lips. How is he talking? Like, yeah, when he first calls from the the hospital to get his goonies to come with the doctor, he can barely speak at all. And by the time they get there, like an hour later, he's figured out how to speak and smoke perfectly. The goonies show up. The like, data <laughs> like comes in through like a a, a line. Hey, boss, you look great. I'm like <laughs> Joe Pantoliano is trying to perform facial surgery on somebody. This this feels like a bad Batman movie. 
Oh, I yeah. have that written down for later. I, if I remember correctly, in the the New 52, there was the death of the family, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. where the Joker did cut his face off yeah. and then staple it back Dude, on. that, it really is horrifying the way they drew it. It's one of my favorite Batman things ever. It's, 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 it's the Joker at maximum fucked upness. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. They did him good in New 52. They really did. I only read Hustlers, so... When they go to not Guantanamo Bay later and they have them in like the weird magnet shoes and they say you can't leave the circle. I was thinking Mr. Freeze and, and Batman and Robin were like, you can't leave that little circle like refrigerated area. I got like a flashbacks of that. Yeah, we can talk about the prison because we talk, the face swap does happen. The face swap happens. They, they take away Archer and Caster's body. And in the moment where he's being taken to the prison, you can hear some of Archer's FBI co-workers talking about how Archer would be furious if he knew this was going on. It's a good thing he's stuck on that training mission in the Georgia swamp. So right. you get, you know, they, they all think that the real Archer's on a training mission, but they get him to the prison. It's a floating prison. The prison was supposed to be the center point of the whole movie originally. Even later, the set was supposed to be way bigger than it was, and they ended up shooting it like in an abandoned factory or warehouse and only being able to use part of it. The prisoners were originally supposed to be kept hanging upside down like bats using the magnetic boots. <laughs> and we're going to be <laughs> right. And they were going to be kept inside these bubbles that fed them fluids and stuff. Um, there's a rumor on the Internet that the metal boots they wear in the movie are the same ones that got used for the Mario Brothers movie. Although they never mentioned that in the commentary. So that might be someone making that up. The writers claim in the commentary that the boots were mostly all actually made of metal and were super heavy and hard for them to move around in. They all look like silver spray-painted ski ski boots. Yeah, Yeah. really. And uh, they don't do their job very well in regards to stopping the characters from fighting with each other because there's a moment later where Archer is cast to kick somebody while he's wearing the metal boots, so apparently they're not that heavy. Gives him a super kick. Yeah, yeah. super kick. This is like the uh, reverse Magneto prison. (laughs) (laughs) This is like... Uh, this is where you place, keep people who can't manipulate metal. I don't think the prison guards know how magnets work. Right. <laughs> they say that this whole place is a magnetic field. And yeah. I'm like, yes. so it's metal? Like, And then, and then <laughs> yeah. I'm like, magnetic boots. Do you have a problem with people flying away? Like, what, what is it? Why do you need to strap their feet to the ground? Does it have a cage? Like, And right in the, I guess the whole idea is supposed to be that the prisoners can be located because there's GPS in their boots and that they can be locked down to the floor, but... When the huge prison fight breaks down and they order the lockdown, it takes like a solid three minutes for it to actually happen. Right. And, and then later in the movie, there's an even bigger prison riot, and they don't seem to lock it down at all. No, so. the codes aren't easy to type in. It's like you have to beat a game <laughs> like, of Tetris. Mm-hmm. It's like that scene at the beginning of Running Man where the guy, they're fighting back and forth with the computers that blow everybody's heads up. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I'd like to say that I got a lot of Punisher vibes from this movie as I was going through. Mm-hmm. And then... Son of a bitch. <laughs> and then uh, Tom Jane appears. My yes. favorite actor of all goddamn time. <laughs> Tom Jane. Surely because you're a huge fan of the show Hung, right? Oh, yeah. And and The <laughs> Expanse. But uh, so, like, I he shows up and I go, holy shit, that's Tom Jane. And then, like, it right. goes and I, I, like, had to pull it up. I was like, by God, I, my Tom Jadar went off. But <laughs> yes. It's funny that he would go on to do The Punisher, which has almost the same setup and plot as this other than son switching a, faces you son of a bitch stop taking my goddamn comments you piece of shit i did this on my own <laughs> oh you did you fucking liar 
You exist because of what I give. I'm leaving the chat. I'm leaving the chat. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Hey, Ronnie, do you have something to say about Tom Jane? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Isn't there another movie where they put Tom Jane in a long blonde wig and have him like pretend to be German or something? That's the Punisher. That is the Punisher. You know what? You're right. It's a moment in the Punisher. Yeah, he's he's the arms dealer in the beginning. Yeah. Fuck that movie. Yeah, fuck that movie. <laughs> I want to say that when we originally thought about doing this podcast and collabing, that I offered the Punisher. I want to I want to say that I did. The best Punisher is clearly the one from like '88 with Dolph Lundgren in it. Oh, get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> we discussed all this on our Spawn commentary. Which John Travolta is in the Punisher too? My God! Yes, he is. Yeah. I want to quickly talk about the boots, right? So okay. we, we know they're the magnetic boots. So the IMDb trivia says that they're the boots that the Goombas wear. Yeah, in Mario Brothers. Not the super jump boots that Mario and Luigi get. Although, Oh, the, that's true. They steal those from that woman. The boots do look similar to both, but not exactly like either. And I, yeah. I, I looked at some images to, to make sure. But they do kind of have a similar right. front design as the Goomba boots. This is the biggest problem with like imdb and i guess wikipedia and any other website where people can put in info is there's no quality assurance like no one's double checking anyone and i'm not even saying the people who put those facts there are necessarily lying on purpose they might be convinced that they're right but like it just a lot of this information doesn't doesn't check out when you go looking for verification elsewhere (laughs) well it's just it's the wikipedia for film it's all it really is yeah Ronnie, do you think that Sean Archer, now in Nicolas Cage's face, does a good job impersonating Nick Cage here in the prison? He starts to do his method acting, I think. So this is the weirdest thing. I think that Travolta is a perfect Cage. Travolta does a hilariously insulting impression of Nicolas Cage, and I love it because I feel like if I was Cage, I'd be so mad how over the top he's going. But Cage is kind of boring as Travolta because I think his character is a little more boring. We're gonna blow up LA, bro. Maybe cool. All right, rub my nose in it, why don't you? Ten million dollar design, and now those militia nut jobs get to keep their cash. So fucking unfair. That bomb you built does deserve an audience. It's a work of art. It belongs in the Louvre. Yes, it does. But man, does Nicolas Cage get boring for about 30 minutes of this movie? But John Travolta is living it up, hamming it up, and it is so much fun to watch him just start screaming and shouting and making fun of how Nicolas Cage acts. Wait, you good looking. You're hot. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. I think you told me this, Ronnie, so I will credit you with this one. But oh, it's a like, surprise. What a goddamn surprise. Well, shut the fuck up. God. <laughs> it's it's like an SNL skit where they're doing impersonations of each other to try and make each other laugh. And it's... Yes. Unfortunately for Nick Cage, you're right. He had nothing to work with. They're like, oh, he's just a good cop that loves his family. You're like, oh, why couldn't Archer had like all these idiosyncrasies or be like an obsessive compulsive or something? Well, Nick Cage has the tougher acting job, I think. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because he's Caster Troy at the beginning, and he does that beautifully. Mm-hmm. And then he has to be Caster Troy inhabited by Sean Archer. Mm-hmm. And then he has to be 
Caster Troy inhabited by Sean Archer pretending to be Caster Troy. On cocaine. So his performance has the extra layer. One of the writers made exactly the same point. I think you're right, that he really had to play three layers to his part where Travolta only had two. Right, because he never really tries to be like Sean Archer, you know, in the Travolta body. Mm. What would that even entail? Just being mad? There are a few, (laughs) few moments like when when Caster and Archer's body shows up at the prison that I think he was, it seems to me like he was making more of an effort to really be cage in that moment. But yeah, overall kind of lazy. Yeah. Also, did we discuss um, why his brother is so suspicious of him for some fucking reason? Because there's a rumor going around. He's dead. Yeah. But, but he sees him, right? Yeah. His brother wouldn't think like you fucking clone. Oh my god, they had him and they cloned him and they put Sean Archer's body in him. I know it. I just fucking know it. It's because he's on drugs and he tells him don't be so paranoid because his brother has medication. Remember? Yeah, but that wouldn't be the conclusion that he went to. At most, he would think he is snitching. Yeah, and like Pollux tries to test him by asking him if he knows what kind of medication he's on. It seem it does seem like a bit much, bro. You gotta help me. I am so fried. If the psychos in here find out I'm misfiring, we're both gonna be dead meat. Shock treatment? What's the matter with you? Did they operate? I was in a coma. Jesus, you're still so freaking paranoid. Aren't they giving you your medication in here? What was my medication? Pollux, I hand-fed you those pills for years. Vivex. I haven't forgotten that. It's just everything else. It's It's like me asking my brother, what's my birthday? And he'd be like, here it is. Well, I guess you passed the test. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, no shit. (laughs) He has no reason to think that his brother is another person inhabiting his body. Why would anyone jump to that conclusion? I think you're both right. I think they were leaning back on that he was supposed to think that, that his brother was dead, but it's not, an, you're also right, it's not enough to cover that level of suspicion. I think it also just adds, like, a conflict, too. It just adds more tension. It's, yeah. It's dumb. Oh, oh, <laughs> that part's the dumb part of this movie. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to step my own bounds there. I apologize. I, I also get the feeling that they wanted to set things up that way so that later on when Pollux discovers what's really going on, he's more accepting of it. Like, it doesn't take much when when his brother shows up wearing Archer's face for Pollux to be like, oh, yeah, I get what's going on. Cool. I accept this. Yeah. <laughs> his accepting should have been as hard as the wife accepting. It should have been a big deal. Yeah. Like, they should have mirrored each other a little bit. But Joan Allen's reaction to figuring out what's going on is the best moment of acting in this entire film. She wants to vomit. <laughs> right. Now, the best moment of acting is when they have the prison fight. And Nick Cage is bleeding from his mouth, and he's kind of like bent over on one knee, and he looks up, and then he gives the big smile, the big Nick Cage smile. <laughs> yes. That's it, man. <laughs> yep. And the, the, that the, moment lives in my heart. The writers describe that moment as Archer's character learning to indulge who Caster is, but I agree with you. For me, it was just like, oh, there's Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. That lovable scamp. Right. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Or as they would say, it wasted potential scrunt. <laughs> you dirty scrunt, you. <laughs> and, it, and then he would go on to narf all over the place. With <laughs> uh, so I know you mentioned earlier that this prison scene was supposed to be the majority of the movie. 
which I think is a more interesting movie because yes. number one, it gives us more time for the characters to deal with being another person, right? So you've got Caster Troy, who's now learning family life, and you could, I think it would be kind of interesting to see this crazy terrorist who's giving this woman the best sex of her life now. Um, <laughs> um, like this view and like maybe he wants to settle down a little bit, right? That's kind of interesting. And then like you have the family man trapped in prison trying to be a crazy person and escape. Like I think that's a much more interesting movie than what we got. Hmm. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And they cut it short with, oh, this prison, which is like this crazy Guantanamo with magnetic boots. All you have to do is have a cigarette and punch someone and then you're out. It's because John Woo got bored. He's like, there's no more shooting. We need more shooting. Yeah, there's no doves in this prison. There's no dual wielding. The weirdest thing about that, and I agree with you, but the weirdest thing about it is is Wu talks a lot in interviews and in the commentary for this film about being a character-driven filmmaker <laughs> and, and about all these fights that he apparently had with the studio because he felt like they were trying to take the character away. But it really doesn't... It, it seems the opposite. I'm agreeing with you guys that, like, it, it really seems more like they went thin on all the areas where they had an opportunity to actually give any substance to these characters and instead just mm-hmm. used every moment as an acceleration point toward the next gunfight, which is, like, what, what action movies typically tend to be. But, uh... You know, you think about movies like Die Hard, where the yes. John McClane character is super engaging and is doing something while he's making his way to these gunfights. And in this, it's just like, just get me to the next action scene, you know? And uh, I also think it's weird. The only thing they really did was swap these guys' faces. And apparently, they also somehow modified each of their bodies so substantially <laughs> that a woman who's been married to this guy for 20 years and has had two kids with them can't tell at all that it's not the same body she's been having sex with. Body or dick? Either way. I wrote in my final notes, <laughs> when <laughs> they swap back, can we keep his dick? <laughs> Do we have to change everything? <laughs> like, I, you know, I mean, at some point, I guess a guy is a guy, but come on, you're telling me a woman who's been married to the same man for more than a decade can't tell even in the dark that it's not the same guy she's been humping all these years. She has two kids with him. She's like, like these moves are far too advanced to be my husband. Right? <laughs> different chest, different stomach, different everything. So going back to you're talking about like the, the tone of this and kind of like the, the, the whole vision, because the first time watching this, and I was like, I didn't know that Nicolas Cage was going to come back, but of course he's going to come back. Right. And I was hoping this would go like a creepy psychological thriller, kind of like Cape Fear, where like, you know, like yes. kind of back and forth, but it goes from melodramatic to ridiculous to over the top shooting to, oh, maybe this could work out for Nick, Nicolas Cage, but I don't think any good marriage started off with rape. So I don't really know if that's going to work out for them. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and apparently that was another fight. The studio did not want Joan Allen's character to have sex with them. They demanded multiple times that, um, well, Warner did. When the movie was still at Warner, uh, they said that the studio demanded multiple times that that scene be removed or rewritten. They did not want the two of them to have sex. And one of the two writers, Michael Colery, swears to God in his commentary track that the argument over that scene is what ultimately pushed Warner Brothers to ditch the script. 
I don't know if that's really true or not, but yeah. And then went over to Miramax <laughs> and Harvey Weinstein was like, yeah, keep it in. We don't care. It's fucking fine. <laughs> Can we make it rapier? You do whatever you want with a 16-year-old daughter. You fucking leave the wife out of this. <laughs> they wanted to do that too. Warner Brothers was super against that scene, but at the same time, they apparently also wanted to remove the actual wife and have it be a stepmother who was only two or three years older than the daughter. <laughs> and it's like, can you can you please, oh, people please God. fucking find some consistency with what you're asking for from this movie. We respect the sanctity of marriage, all right? She needs bigger tits. <laughs> and on top of which, when the movie finally got to Paramount, the woman who was in charge of Paramount apparently wrote them a note at one point demanding that they not have anyone smoke on screen, oh which they then did multiple times just as a fuck you. But it's like you're making an R-rated John Woo movie about a face swap and gunfights and smoking is the element you're worried about. There's a scene where the bad guy leers at the good guy's teenage daughter laying on her bed in panties. And smoking is what you're concerned about. I don't see anything wrong with this. I love hearing these <laughs> documentaries, like John Woo being like, I care about character, right? Because yes. it's so funny of what they project themselves when you listen to the real person. And the only thing I can compare it to is I once watched a documentary of Modern Family. <laughs> and you see that show, and then you hear the actors talk. And it's so funny to see Phil Dunphy be like, oh, yeah, you know, you see him on screen and then you see a servant come up to him, sir, I've got your eggs. They're scrambled. And he's like, these are my fucking eggs. And he like throws them on the ground. Like, But that's the everyman American dad. And it's funny to hear these directors and everyone talk about and project who they think they are. Yes. And then you see what they make and you're like, you're so full of shit. Right. I mean, I think the group of us has come up with at least three ideas for what this film could have been that were way more character driven than what they actually did. So, yeah. Yeah. And just to hear that the studio had problems with an older wife. is <laughs> Okay. Yes. Shane, I don't know if, uh, well, we've glossed over it, but the moment where uh, John Travolta being inhabited by Castor Troy, when he sees the daughter, oh. I mean, what are your thoughts on that moment? So I... I've seen this movie before, but it's been a very, very long time. And I was like, oh, my God. I don't remember if they go this direction. <laughs> like, I was waiting for this, like, the, the freaking Pornhub drums to go. Like, it was... <laughs> oh, my God. You're not respecting my boundaries. I'm coming in, Janie. Janie? I don't think you heard me, Jamie. You've got something that I crave. I was like, this is dark, but also I didn't know if the director had the balls to like have Caster Troy hit on his daughter. It, it's a weird spot that you put yourself in because Caster Troy is this horn dog, right? He's like this <laughs> sex symbol, crazy person inhabiting this. And what better way to wreck your nemesis than to, to go that direction, right? I don't even want to vocalize it, but yes. um, they didn't. And instead, they went with Caster Troy as her stepdad, basically. Like, he <laughs> protects her and, like, yeah. kind of mentors her in not a bad way. I, I like, And I, if I'm wrong, he'll correct me. I have a feeling this might be where Corey was going to go with her character. When I said earlier, I thought that her presence was only the setup for that ending scene. I think the only other reason for her to be there is to try to do that duality thing. Where, yes. where Caster's character is is suddenly sort of concerned with 
this girl and, and is showing some degree of humanity. And here's the guy who really murdered her younger brother. But yeah, it's they're real thin on it. And it's another one of those where like, yeah, he could have he, he could have gone that direction and it would have just absolutely fucking destroyed his nemesis, which is what this character is supposed to be about in the first Some place. old boy shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. And, you know, I, I think that had this movie been directed by somebody like a Cronenberg or maybe even a Fincher oh, and they'd yeah. been given the opportunity to rewrite the script, they may have been able they may have been able to do that because the, the, I don't want to ruin it for anyone listening who hasn't seen the film, but the way they, they capped off Seven was was unbelievably fucked the first time I saw the film. It was like, holy shit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they, they could have gone that route, but yeah. The movie Seven, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. Face Off Seven. It no. didn't make any sequel. <laughs> no. That movie actually had a pretty good ending. But they are, I was going to save this comment until the end, but they are doing a sequel. There's a sequel in production right now. Oh, my God. A Face Off? Yeah, they're, they're, they're apparently still working on the final draft of the script, but it is it is being... Worked on, it may end up in development, hell, and never get made. But at the, at this very moment, the intention is to produce a sequel. Of course there is. Yeah. There is no God. <laughs> Once again, you're stealing things I said. <laughs> Wait, uh, you don't copyright there is no God. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's in my autobiography. <laughs> Called God is Dead. <laughs> Still. <laughs> Face off to oh. the story. <laughs> I mean, we can cap off the stuff with a daughter, Ronnie. I mean, Caster Troy does rescue her in a very difficult situation, does he not? Speaking of rapey Scientologists. Yeah, there, there we go. We're going full circle now. So um, the, uh, the one of the stoners from that 70s show drops is bringing home the girl and decides to want to fuck her in the driveway of her parents' house because that makes the most sense. Prime location. <laughs> yeah, do it in her parents' driveway. In her parents' driveway because it's super sexy in the parents' driveway. So then he's right. out there and she's like, no. And he's like, yes, I was in 70s show. And he's like, no. And then um, John Travolta uh, runs out there and, and kicks through the windshield with his foot with no repercussions, pulls him out and beats the shit out of him. And then and he says to her, lighting up a cigarette, you shouldn't let boys rape you. Here's a butterfly knife and stab him in the dick next time. Yeah, like Mr. Fucking Invisible gives a shit about you anyway. So I'll fucking old school. Oh, Calm down. <laughs> so, I number one, I didn't know that was the guy from that '70s show, Danny Masterson. Danny Masterson. Yeah. yeah wow. Do you know him? Who, you know. <laughs> who is to bring this? And I, this this line may get removed pending Corey's discretion. But who is a so, yeah. It's a prerequisite for Hollywood nowadays. Yeah, he, well, he's just playing himself. He was yeah, exactly. he's doing method acting, okay? Method acting. <laughs> right? So, they're they, like, just do whatever you would normally do in this exact situation. <laughs> I got well, yeah, this. <laughs> just be yourself, Danny. Don't worry about it. In a few years, you'll be famous enough to get away with this anyway. <laughs> Hold my joint. I got this. <laughs> I'm so tired of the old trope of... She goes on the date with the bad boy, and then, like, he thrusts herself upon him. I think it would have been a yeah. funnier, better scene if, like, she's going to go out, right? And so, Caster Troy being the new dad of the house and, like, kind of inhabiting the role a little bit, just smoking a cigarette, and he's like, where the fuck are you going? You're dressed like a ghoul or whatever, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going out. And then that guy's like, yeah, old man, fuck you. And he's like, what'd you say to me? And then he kicks the shit out of him, right? 
Because then that's like Caster Troy is not being a good guy. He's just beating a kid up because he talked shit to him, you know? And he's also being a hypocrite because he's raped his wife I've seen before this. Exactly. Like, and it's it's so stupid, this whole, yeah. like, because she's like, I'm really into this guy. What's to say that they wouldn't have sex in her dad's driveway? Like, why does he have to be a rapist to, yeah. to demonstrate that Caster Troy is going to be? Is he having a character arc? A bad one, yeah. Okay, it's, it, he's having an incomplete, inconsistent one that doesn't very make make very much sense. The rapist is beating up another rapist. Like, Especially, I mean, would he have become a good guy? Well, I mean, and then at the end of the movie, the same girl he's been trying to purportedly protect the entire time becomes body armor. So it's like, I no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, it's because they, they. I don't want to give the writers too much credit because the movie's trash, but. They had some ideas, like you said, for character development, but then I guess the writers of John was like, we need more shooting. So then all the character development is entirely tossed away. So it's just kind of like, you, you can't have it both ways. So I think when we get to the ending, I can talk about my full thoughts on this movie, but like, it's just super yeah. totally inconsistent and it's kind of frustrating because there's so much amazing nonsense action, but also really right. uncomfortable psychological thriller stuff that doesn't really work. Speaking of nonsense action, I'm going to let you guys talk, but real quick, because I, I think it's relevant to that comment. Can we talk just for a moment about about Nick Cage as Archer escaping from the prison? Because he starts this riot, which I don't think we need to go into too much depth on, but he starts this riot. He enlists the help of a guy who hated him, and the two of them have a moment, and the guy dies. But it, this culminates with Caster as Archer being on the top of this, like, oil rig he realizes that the prison he's on is out in the middle of the ocean like alcatraz style i really like that moment though Mm -hmm. the people inside don't really know anything about mm -hmm. the facility they're in yeah i so i agree with you in the sense that i like the realization that this prison is in the middle of nowhere on an island and it's definitely a nod to escape from alcatraz which was one of their inspirations for this one but at the same time I find it really weird that he's able to exit this facility through a door that's obviously not locked at all. It's very strange they wouldn't have any kind of locking mechanism on a door that allows you outside a prison facility. They didn't plan past the magnetic boots. That was <laughs> that was the only plan. <laughs> they bankrupted it. Then he gets up there, he's got this helicopter chasing him, he jumps into the water from the top, fine. But he is clearly miles from the beach. There's a boat in the shot. So that's my problem is like, so maybe he uses the boat, but he's being looked down on in this helicopter. So either he uses the boat to get away, at which point the helicopter could very easily follow him, or he somehow swims miles to shore without ever needing to come up for air long enough to be visible to the helicopter. And because he jumps into the water, despite the fact that they never collected a body, they just assume that he must have drowned. The next time he appears, he's completely dry and stealing a car from outside a restaurant. There's a huge <laughs> gap here. Or, there is. or third what? option, he's part merman. <laughs> like, like, how did he get away from the helicopter? And to their credit, I guess, the writers say during the commentary they wanted this to be a much bigger thing with a longer chase and they had to trim because of budget and scheduling concerns. But it's like, fine, then at least have it make some modicum of sense it makes no sense i thought they were gonna have him steal the helicopter yeah like do some way to get onto it 
funnily enough, that was their one of their original ideas. They wanted to have him get up there and find that a helicopter with the keys still in it had been left behind, and that was how he was going to get away. And they cut it. The keys are on the visor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and the and, and I'm not making that up. That came from the writers. That came from the writers' mouth. Like, like that is not an internet rumor. It definitely was a thing. <laughs> I think they're pretty good at covering their asses on uh, some of the little details with throwaway yeah. lines here and there. But that moment is a glaring exception. Because <laughs> right. it almost undermines the moment that I really like when he's on top of the rig mm-hmm. and he like screams in defeat because he realizes there's no escaping yes. this place. Mm-hmm. It's, but then he just escapes right away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. It's like the end where they're like, that the whole setup of this movie is without this one special ops doctor, you can never go back. And it's like, ah, oh, they're getting their best from DC. It's going to be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I forgot. Yeah. Caster Troy does kill all the people that know Sean yeah. Archer's true identity. And, yeah. and toward the end, Joan Allen makes Margaret Cho's character aware of the situation by calling her and saying, I've got something crazy to tell you. <laughs> it's because they, they realize that we're in a corner just... Just keep going. Don't just keep going. Just keep just keep shooting right. things and put some more doves and some Jesus imagery. We'll be fine. Keep going. And the writers actually described that moment as being exactly what Corey is talking about. They didn't want to have to have the audience sit through one character re-explaining what was going on that late in the movie. So they just left it at I'm, I've got something crazy to tell you. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Right. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, so I have a question. And this is more of a broad question. So, like, in the early or late 80s, early 90s, like, Hong Kong action, which, big part because of John Woo, was, like, huge. And it has, like, this charm to it, right? You yeah. see it. And even though each movie is, like, by the numbers, it it still has, like, the style and, and sense to it that's amazing. And I, I see it in Korean cinema now, too, where a yeah. lot of the Korean action films are very by the numbers you know the lost mafia guy or the lost hitman that goes against the boss and that but they're good they have all it it's so entertaining the action's amazing but as soon as it comes to america and they transplant it into american cinema it becomes dog shit yeah (laughs) why is this is this because like the producer's like you gotta have tits they gotta be yeah. big tits, like you know, I, like, like the I, old boy, I like it, was remade. Yes, <laughs> I think it's American producers believing that something that's really a niche product is something they can morph into a more widely liked product by applying an American sensibility. Like the reality is, so a lot of Americans who like Hong Kong cinema, like myself included, but then you that what you like is Hong Kong cinema, not the American version of it, you know. And, and they bring it here and they want to make it more palatable for a wider audience. So they water it down and they, yeah, you got to have the tits and you got to have the smoking and you've got to have the cliche. And you know, they, they do it with remakes too. Is there the remake of The Ring or the remake of The Grudge? And they just, they take something that was sort of an original idea to begin with and turn it into just it's something that's been done before. Yeah. That's Japanese though. That's yeah, Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just in terms of taking foreign foreign films and remaking them for American audience. You have to make them stupid so that Americans like us will understand <laughs> right. it, okay? And I'm, I, I know I'm failing to think of something, but in this moment off the top of my head, I can't think of an American remake of a foreign film that I really love. So I have a controversial perspective on that. I like the, um, 
let the right one in. I like the American remake Ooh. too. People don't like it. I actually like it, but I, th- I think it kind of sells because the kid actors are really good in it. But people, some people just can't stand it. I actually like it though. There is a new um, uh, European, I think, Finnish or or Icelandic television series coming adapted from it. I I'll agree with you in so much as that I don't hate the American version, but the 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 original European version is one of my top like five vampire films. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, yeah. But I have not seen this film. <laughs> it's it's one of the greatest vampire films ever made, in my opinion. I mean that completely sincerely. Better than it, the one with Keith or Sutherland? What is that called? The Lost Boys? The Lost Boys? <laughs> I mean, look, Corey will attest, I love, I love The Lost Boys. I've got a gigantic soft spot for that movie. But it's it's a it's a very specific thing and eighties <laughs> nostalgia is very much a reason why I like it so much. And yeah, it's 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 it as a film, it's it's a, it's a more real film. It's a better movie. It's one of only two or three examples, four examples I can think of where they actually tried to make a real vampire film instead of just a movie where vampires were the main characters. Unlike the Lost Boys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So, the Lost Boys is schlocky. But I, I love still it. contend, and Steve does not agree, that the Lost Boys is a very homoerotic movie. I mean, a little bit, a little bit. The saxophone bit. guy alone, man. Most 80s action films Oh my are. God, I love the saxophone, dude. That's one of my favorite parts of that whole movie. The song is the best. Um, Schumacher always interjects a little bit of that. I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean it in a shitty way, but his two Batman movies are like like a gay nightclub featuring Batman. <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah. So many glow sticks. So many glow sticks, a Batmobile that looks like a dildo. And uh, nipples on the Bat costume. I mean, it, the list just goes on. Let's get back on track, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> Have we covered the part where the real caster Troy in Sean Archer's body has now decided that he wants to rule the U.S. government? <laughs> so he's going to, like, disable the bomb and earn public favor that way? Well, he's, he's the perfect uh, personality type to be a politician, ultimately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's... Yeah, violent narcissist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, he... He decides that the best way to go as Sean Archer, instead of just using all his clearances to clear out his bank account and like steal as much intel as he can and never be seen again, he decides that he's going to disable his bomb and become Time Man of the Year because of it. He goes to the LA Convention Center where the bomb is, and all I wrote is, could you imagine if we had real agents that were just plug and play to every disaster. Like, <laughs> it was like, no matter what the issue is, we have an FBI agent that we throw at the problem. Like this guy, we just throw it at him and he solves it. Like, and anytime a big name actor plays an agent, whether it's Bruce Willis or Schwarzenegger or anyone else, that's always the type of agent they are. So he's like, this guy can get it done. And at some court point during the course of the film, we're going to have one of those cliche conversations that the group of us has already made fun of that like I hate your methods but you get results yeah. so it's always going to end up happening and like the bomb squad is there just trying to defuse the bomb and they can't but for some reason he is also there he would not be allowed within a hundred miles of the yeah. scene because it's a bomb and you kick out the bomb squad guys yeah and like, then he, yeah. he punches in the code and it's disabled and like he did it and the bomb squad guys are just like god damn I guess I suck like, <laughs> no one has any follow-up questions about how he figured about that out. How he did it with None. one second left and, and right. knew. That comes into play later, though, 
when his boss is like, we have no idea where you're getting your intel from, and then he has a heart attack and dies, so any kind of conflict is resolved. The head of the FBI? Yeah. Like, just, god damn it. It's so bad. <laughs> the father-in-law from Fargo? Yeah. <laughs> no, but Ronnie, I wanted to talk about actually another moment where uh, Sean Archer in Nick Cage's body meets up with uh, Caster Troy's old crew in their uh, upscale 90s henchman hangout. I love that place. I love that hangout. I want to live there. In fact, the writers said during their commentary that everyone on set wanted to live there when they were filming it. In John Woo's second house? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, it, is, it, is, it is awesome. It's perfect, perfect 90s downtown LA loft hangout. Like, I love it. I want it. So basically... Um... John Travolta as Nicholas Nicholas Cage as John Travolta. I'm getting confused now. My brain's broken. Um, decides he has nowhere else to go, so he meets up with the the old Goonie cronies at. Um, he just finds them, and then uh, sloth in the group. And then he decides that I'm gonna use them to kill my old body. So then they thinking he was dead, but even though his other goon cronies knew that he wasn't dead, he was in that body. So it's really confusing there. He goes, and then they, they plan it out, and they do cocaine, and then Nicolas Cage does a really good Jim Carrey impression, and Max is absolutely bonkers, and then when he's freaking out on cocaine, they say, face off, and then, then there's this really awkward 20-minute scene where Nick Caster Archer is having a moment of, like, I feel bad for the single mom. This is supposedly your son. Why is there a kid walking around this place when there's guns and cocaine everywhere? I'm supposed to feel bad for this. And I'm, I'm just like, I don't know what to feel anymore in this movie. Is it, am I supposed to be laughing at this or feeling bad for sympathy for these characters? I'm just broken. The, the kid standing around in the middle of the gunfight was not originally in the script. John Woo wanted it added. Paramount fought him oh about it. God. The writers were the only ones who even remotely agreed with him. He kept insisting it got to the point where he told the studio that he was going to film it, whether he had permission or not, and would just pay for it. <laughs> Excellent. And that he was just going to pay for shooting that sequence himself. I'm an auteur, goddammit. Right? I told you that fucking inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> right? They took him up on the offer. They said, fine, if you're willing to pay for it, we'll give you like three days to get the sequence shot. His lawyer got angry at him about it for, for offering to pay. <laughs> God damn it, John, we can't afford this <laughs> right, exactly. shit. <laughs> and, um... And uh, apparently, according to Wu, the studio executives ended up liking that part of the scene so much they never made him pay for it. It was actually a much longer scene. If you go through the deleted scene content on the home video releases, there's like an extra four or five oh minutes gosh, to it that they cut Jesus. out. It is painful. It's painful. And yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. He's a cute little kid. I, you know, I, My reaction is like, oh my God, get this kid out of there before he gets killed. But, like, it's also really stupid. It is really stupid. And Wu somehow thought that the contrast between the innocent kid listening to Over the Rainbow oh set against the gunfight would be, like, this huge, yeah, visual visual payout, emotional payout. And I'm just sitting there going, this is, this is laughable. You're supposed to watch it and be like, wow, this is beautiful. Exactly. And instead you're like, huh? <laughs> but, like, like no. with all the sparks and the glass breaking, what you actually think is, wow, this is a 90s action movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's otherwise my favorite action sequence. Well, one of my favorite action sequences in the movie. The boat's great, obviously. The plane's great, too. But, like, if you take the kid out of it, even though it is a very 90s moment, it's not a bad shootout. It's a lot going on. But...
here's a problem I have with the action is also back to the fireworks factory in the beginning. The spatial understanding of where characters are at in the scenes <laughs> is like a blind person planned it out. It's so confusing of how <laughs> movement and the gunfire is going. I'm just so confused of how who is in what location and what like physical relation to each other is so weird doesn't matter they're flipping and diving everywhere people are moving everywhere <laughs> there are multiple tall stand-up mirrors that get knocked over during the course of this fight yeah. and that was a compromise as well the writers and Wu originally wanted the last portion of the fight inside this loft to take place in caster's dressing room which was basically going to be a house of mirrors and they, they wanted to underline that he's so vain that he just wanted to be able to, right, of course, that he wanted to be able to see himself all over the place. And when they couldn't, when the studio was like, no, this is dumb, uh, it really also would have been an homage to uh, an Orson Welles movie called The Third Man. But, like, the studio didn't like it, wouldn't give them time or money for it, so they, they just trimmed it down to being standing mirrors, which are supposed to be symbolic of Caster's vanity, but you, you, you don't actually understand why they're there unless you've read all this background. Stop, Steve. <laughs> Stop acting like you have a plan for this fucking movie. Stop giving him credit. So I'm going to rewind to the, the beginning before the the gunshots start going off, and they're sitting together doing cocaine and whatever the fuck they're drinking, scissor or whatever it is the kids do these days. Um, and he goes... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna kill Sean Archer or whatever, and they're like, "What? Are you fucking kidding me? He's he's untouchable." And he's like, "He must have alarms everywhere." I was like, "You just sold a bioweapon <laughs> to destroy all of Greater LA, and you're afraid of AT and T alarms? <laughs> like, like or, or, these terrorists break in and they're like." Hi, AT&T alarms. Your alarm's going off. Fuck! Get out of here! <laughs> like, you could break into a house and shoot a guy and leave in way less time than it'll take the LAPD to show <laughs> But that's what has been keeping him alive this entire time, is that he has a home alarm a house system. Alarm. <laughs> they, they, they tried to assassinate him with a sniper rifle while he was riding a carousel in a public place mm -hmm. with his kid, but his home alarm... His alarm what... connects to his 56K modem. <laughs> have, have, you, have you seen the sign in his lawn? That place is protected. <laughs> This house presented by Fisher Security. Fighting these fucking terrorists. But then the kid, who I think looks a lot like the kid from the Indian in the cupboard, he has the same 90s fucking haircut. <laughs> like, since every 90s kid just looks the same. like It's a partial mullet. Then, since I I think John Woo's filming this, and he goes, man, no one's buying this shit. No one gives a shit about this kid. So then he like draws in and be like, it's your son, Caster. Like, John Travolta or Sean Archer would give a fuck. That it, but so then he's like, oh, but he looks just like his son. Like, they try everything to make you care if this kid gets blown up. Well, look, they had a connection. He pet the kid's face. He did. He touched his face <laughs> and formed a connection. And then my favorite, the FBI goes... There's the kid! Open fire! <laughs> yeah, that's another one. None of them stops even for a moment because there's a child there. No, they shoot harder. Yeah. <laughs> All these FBI agents like, it's a kid, get him! They just blast right. the whole room. The kid's just collateral damage while we get these other people. Which leads to my favorite thing ever. And so I'll preface this, that I had a short stint in the military before I got a bad case of gout in basic. So I have some idea of military tactics. Okay. Is that a true story? We'll see. <laughs> so there is a scene where a guy comes down on a rope. One FBI agent like repels in. And I was like, why is there only one? Was the team all lined up on the skylight to repel in? And 
They're like, fuck Bob. Let him go first. <laughs> right with his back. And Bob just goes in. He's like, where the fuck is everybody? <laughs> right? And then, not only that, freaking in John Woo fashion, so there's a team stacked up on the door to break in, right? They're going to break in and kill everybody. They open the door, and the girl shoots at them, and the FBI agents close the door. And <laughs> Like, all right, everyone, go! And they're like, oh, fuck that, we're getting shot at. And they shut the door again and go back out. And like, <laughs> I man. can only imagine if, like, the Bin Laden raid, they're like, get him! Oh, shit, there's guns! Oh, and they all close the guns. door. <laughs> but I was just like, does oh. someone have a problem with Bob? Because they let him go into this terrace house completely alone on the road. Oh, my God. So uh, the really important scene, part of this scene is when, uh, is it Nick Casavetes and then the girl who are brother and sister, correct? Yes. I yes. wrote that down. I was like, they're brother and sister. And then they have a Luke and Leia, like mouth to mouth kiss when he gets shot in the neck and dies. And I was like, huh? Yeah. Why? What happened in the writing room? That, that moment has always confused the shit out of me. And I've, I've never been completely sure whether they are supposed to be brother and sister because they of that are. moment. And they it's like, are. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always figured, yeah, they are. But like, yeah, that's an awful. I actually got into a fight with a friend of mine's ex-girlfriend over this years ago, over this exact same Why, conversation. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That she was a fucking psycho. And, but I, uh, and, and this was one of like, we, we had numerous fights, numerous fights about psych. And this was one of the fights. Cause I made, it was another movie. I can't remember what, but I'm like, it's real weird that these, like there's father and a kid or something or having these, these big, like lip to lip, full mouth hardcore kisses and she she actually got offended she's like oh no my my grandparents always kissed me that way what's wrong with that and i'm like oh well everything everything is wrong with that that's what the problem we're getting to the core of the issue of their relationship problems (laughs) right (laughs) and i'm like fine i get where you're coming from i guess (laughs) you do you lady yeah so they are brother and sister and petting kids kissing your siblings on the mouth whatever the reason that that was included is because the two actors that kissed each other that are scripted as brother and sister decided that they wanted to have an ambiguous sexual relationship. And the writers said that if they would have kept the kiss in its actual length of them shooting it, they would have needed a second disc for the movie. That's how long they kissed. So what is wrong with these? (laughs) Can the producer not get a handle on these fucking people? That producer was comatose the entire movie. He just said, I give up. I'm going to go do coke in my Ferrari. Like, I'm done. Okay. You guys figure this shit out. So what's even weirder is the, I don't know the actress's name, but the girl who doesn't have a character, she says... Gina Gershon. Yeah. yeah, she says to Nicolas Cage, being John Travolta, John Travolta's Nicolas Cage, that, like, no one knows he's your kid. So is everyone assuming that the kid is her brother's son and they're just super fine with this? Ooh. I... I don't know, man. It's yeah. When he kissed her, my world broke because I was like, <laughs> I thought that was her brother, and then it turns out it really is her brother, which brings everything Ooh. else into question for me here. In the criminal underworld, incest babies are just a part of everyday life. Yeah, so. it's, it's just a cost of doing business. <laughs> well, the reason why I mentioned this scene is this is the scene where I really got into this movie. I was like, okay, hold on here, let's let's get a little deeper. Here. Now we're talking. Now, now this is the interesting. perverse part of me is suddenly very interesting. <laughs> Maybe the baby will come out as an animal. I'll really be into this. <laughs> How many fingers and toes does this kid have? Yeah. We'll take the baby and smack it against the wall, and then Ronnie will laugh and be happy. It's gonna be perfect. <laughs> right? The Nightingale. Uh, yeah, my, one of my favorite movies from a couple years ago. 
You know what, Ronnie? I I have never heard you talk about it, but I know that you would love the Nightingale. I just knew <laughs> it. Oh yeah, of course, everyone knows yeah. it because it has the most fucked up shit that could ever happen in a movie. Yep. Therefore, you well, like it. Therefore, mm-hmm. Ronnie has the hard copy. <laughs> <laughs> I have the posters in my uh, recording room. Yeah. Steve, there's a moment in the showdown in this big action scene where it's like the two go head to head, right? Sean yeah. Archer and Caster Troy. And they're each behind a mirror. Yes. They're each looking at each other. Or Ooh, they're looking at themselves. Very cinematic. On the other side <laughs> of the mirror. I actually appreciated this. Yeah. Despite the movie's flaws and how silly it is, I think that is a nice touch to have. It does have to be in there somewhere. Did you No, agree? I actually agree with you. Like, I, it, I, the problem is so much of it is ridiculous. By the time they get to there, I'm like, oh, you guys finally had this one fucking idea, huh? <laughs> but no, I mean, on its own, on its own, you're right. It's a nice touch. It's a good one. It's very, very uh, apropos to the story. Thank you for validating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can do a few things right. I know John Woo had the cocaine haze go away, and he's like, oh, we, we can have this, like, duality scene. <laughs> <laughs> And then it devolves into their shooting each other again. <laughs> it's because he got bored. His ADHD kicked in. He's like, ah, more shoots. Right? When it's just, it's, it's also, as much as I sort of like it, it's also kind of cliche. It's like, oh, they're both down to their last bullet. Now they have to have a conversation. These two people hate each other. They've been trying to kill each other for years. One is responsible for the death of the other son. Just, just fucking shoot each other. Just shoot each other. And rape. Don't forget the rape. Rape's important. Right? Uh, one has been having sex with the other's wife. He's oddly unconcerned about that. Like, knowing that it's going on or finding out that it's going on does not really seem to bug him. He's got to keep his head in the game, man. Right? And he did not ask the one question that every man would ask was, did you like it? <laughs> did you like it? Yeah, he never never asks his wife. He never has that insecure moment where it's like, well, was he better than me? <laughs> was he bigger than me? Was he, <laughs> was he bigger than me? Yeah, he's he's not concerned about what this guy might have done to his daughter in the least. Nah. And it never even asks. He's given up on her. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like, no wonder she's acting out. You obviously hate her. <laughs> I mean, the worst part is, is she's clearly older than the younger brother. So she was the first kid. And the first, like, not that I... Not that I don't understand why losing a child that way would wreck a person. It would wreck me. But, like, you've got this other kid who obviously is older, who you had first, and, like, you're now just ignoring the shit out of her. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Steve, if I ever die in front of you, will you tie my shoe? Absolutely, 100%. (laughs) You know, I know you have a problem keeping your shoes tied. Mm -hmm, Yeah. And then shoot the first man who goes, do you know that guy? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I definitely, definitely don't think that your wife would find that weird. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad we have that that uh, Troy relationship, the Troy brothers, <laughs> where like anytime my shoes untied, you come up and you tie it. Oh, uh, I do, I do have a standing deal with a surprising number of my male friends that I will immediately show up at their place and wipe their hard drives if they're ever found dead. Oh my god, <laughs> what kind of people are you dealing with? Apparently some pretty terrible ones. Don't tell secrets about me, Steve. Come on, goddammit. Who saves stuff to their hard drive? I can't believe you you revealed Ronnie in that way. That's the one I always find weird. It's like, I don't care how many layers of password you've got. If there's shit in there you're really worried about people seeing, it shouldn't be there. I have a magnet that drops from the ceiling onto my computers. (laughs) (laughs) In case of death, it's a dead man switch. (laughs) Right. Wear those metal boots. (laughs) pull you right up i'm batman ronnie can't even tie my shoes that's why i wear velcro shoes
So, Ronnie, I have a question for you. Have you ever wanted to kill your boss in the same way that Caster Troy kills the head of the FBI? <laughs> so, I one time used to work maintenance. And I hated my boss, but my supervisor was pissing me off because we had to do something really stupid for the boss. And I was, like, <laughs> complaining and kind of throwing these, like, cinder blocks. And he says, stop doing that. And I said, like, go fuck yourself. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? The guy grabs me by the throat and puts me against the wall. And then uh, he sees my eyes and realizes at that point he made a huge fucking mistake to grab an employee and hold him against the wall by the throat. We became oh good God. friends after that moment. But uh, yes, I've never I, heard this story. Holy yeah. shit. It doesn't really come up in conversation very often, but Dude, yeah. that is a huge workers' comp lawsuit or whatever. <laughs> well, like, it was undercut by the fact that Ronnie made out with him after that, so it was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was really the sex that destroyed your ability to sue, yeah. It was the blowjob noises, um, but... Um, <laughs> Did either of you pet the other one's face as long as you were that close to each other? How do you, you guys know my, my, my entire autobiography before I finish even writing it? <laughs> but um, I don't really, I don't really have really hated bosses. I kind of nothing them. I kind of just always thought so little of my bosses that I'd never really give them any kind of thought besides what a fucking idiot. But no, just that one guy and he grabbed me by the throw. I didn't even want to hit him back because I realized he didn't, he didn't fucked up really, really bad. <laughs> Jesus. Sometimes you just got to give them a chop to the back of the neck and then like a well, a swift blow to the heart. I don't think <laughs> the writers understand the anatomy of a myo, like a, an infarction of the heart. Like it's, it's just, that's not how <laughs> this works. Cardio. Yeah, right. Like it, that's not how this works here. You don't judo chop someone's heart and that accelerates the hypoxia of the heart. Like this. Uh, you just don't have access to the pressure point martial arts training that he does. <laughs> and All right. I think the coroner would have noticed that, like, well, while this man was having a heart attack, it appears someone broke his neck. <laughs> is, is anyone else? I know Corey's probably not. Is any? Are you? Are either of you guys familiar with Fist of the North Star? No, I haven't seen that one. No. All right. Well, there's a live action movie that you should never ever ever under any circumstances even look up because it's one of the worst things that's ever been made figure figure it's a thousand times worse than the worst movie you've ever seen i mean that sincerely but the, it was it was an anime originally anyway the larger point is it's this kind of mad max world and these people are like crazy martial artists and it's all bullshit obviously but they there's a couple of these guys like they're practitioners of this crazy pressure point martial art or like they can hit you two dozen times in a five second period, and then ten seconds later, the victim just blows up. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And like, I just imagine that like that Caster has spent all his time watching this old anime from the eighties and thinks that he can do it in real life. That's, that's the most likely <laughs> scenario. <laughs> he does seem like a weeb. He does. Like, how does he make the connection? Of, oh, he must be having a heart attack right now, not indigestion. Because <laughs> the camera does a close up on the chest. Like, they were supposed to have spent the movie underlining that they were supposed to have a few scenes where the the, the Lazaro character like pops heart meds and stuff to underline it. And they, they trimmed it all out and then had him have the heart attack anyway. Why not just have Lazaro take part in the raid and he kills Lazaro in the middle of the raid? Because that would involve having thought about what they were doing. <laughs> Don't interject something that makes sense into the script. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> but so he kills Lazaro, right? And naturally, he becomes the head of the FBI <laughs> because he's yes. time man of the year, because that's what special ops is known for, is putting their face <laughs> on the cover of Time magazine 
after they do something. <laughs> like SEAL Team 6, we all know the names of every member, right? Like, God damn it. I have never known an FBI agent's name like, by heart. <laughs> the FBI broke the, broke up the 1996 Olympic bombing event. I have no idea what those agents' names were. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't win time man of the year. Like, <laughs> right. And... And so, based on popularity alone, they're like, Lazaro is dead, you're going to be the head. That's the decision they're going to make, which directly mirrors Ronnie's life with the cinder block manufacturer that choked him. (laughs) (laughs) Ronnie then killed him and became head of the cinder block manufacturing business. (laughs) Yeah, that's where he works today. Stop taking away all the things from autobiography, (laughs) goddammit. So that's why the title of the book is Cinderblock Man. Yeah. <laughs> and I can I can identify with that boss. Ronnie's an annoying piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed our time together, gentlemen. We gotta go. <laughs> uh, where are where are we at in this this film now? So what's going on here is that <laughs> Yeah, Sean Archer goes to visit his wife. Of course he is in Castor Troy's body. And kind of tells her the truth, right, Steve? Yeah, yeah. He shows up uh, at home, and she's coming out of the shower, tells her what's going on. Of course, she does not believe what's going on. She only recognizes him as the face that killed her son and is horrified. This is the, the only moment in this entire movie I think I could call real acting is her reaction. And... uh he sort of caps it off by saying the guy pretending to be your husband has a different blood type than me and you can prove that I'm telling you the truth by ascertaining that. He also tells her the story of their first date. Yeah, which, that's right. Which kind of like nudges her in the direction of even doing that, I think. And apparently was just aped from a true story. One of the writers had a friend who basically that exact same situation leading up to the engagement with with a, a fiance except he claims in real life the woman had a pebble in her story in her salad that she broke her tooth on he also claims the same writer also claims that there's another scene in the movie where Castor pretending to be Archer has this huge romantic dinner for himself and the wife and with flowers and lobster the writer claims that another friend of his recreated that dinner scene to ask his fiance to marry him and that it worked Ooh, drawing yeah. inspiration from the movie Face Off. Yeah, wow. exactly. How romantic. <laughs> Nothing more romantic. <laughs> right? I can't imagine your future wife finding out that you planned that dinner because it was a scene in Face Off. Yeah, so there's this rape scene in a movie that I'm going to reenact. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. I asked my wife to marry me while we made pottery together, and I stood behind her. So, <laughs> My father asked my mother to marry him at a bagel shop. <laughs> Uh, so yeah absolutely it's a true story i got respect for the ghost method if that's true <laughs> right uh, god we, we did a podcast on that right steve yeah, we did and i i was the only one on that episode who did not find the pottery scene endearing at all you got no heart i guess not it was going to be that or days of thunder i was going to put a sugar packet on her thighs and then have a ring on it and just slide it. <laughs> i proposed like in the movie um nymphomaniac so whatever <laughs> Everyone's different. (laughs) Shia LaBeouf will be there. Mm -hmm. Shia LaBeouf's got to tear himself away from getting his ass kicked in drunken bar fights and being bad in Indiana Jones movies. He's really the hero we all need. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So Uh. when when he tells her... So she surprisingly takes this pretty well, I guess. Like, she kind of just kind of goes along for the ride. 
I guess once this stranger is saying these things, you could like have to buy in a little bit. And then he's like, oh, the blood type, that's how we're gonna prove it. Because there's not a bunch of O positives running around out there, A, B negatives or whatever. But so she <laughs> she jabs him in his sleep and he doesn't wake up and gets a blood sample, right? We'll look past that. Cause everyone's got special needles. No one has regular needles in this film. <laughs> the writers originally scripted that scene to have him wake up and she lied about a mosquito coming in through an open window. That, that makes more fucking sense, at least. Like, it was huge. You should have seen monster. it. Right. But then you'll take your head off. I just for some reason pictured when she put the specimen to look at it, there was going to be a bunch of Nick Cage smiling faces like floating around his cells. She's like, my <laughs> God. <laughs> like the vampire kiss face. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Or she decides to clone him like in Jurassic Park. I have so many Nick Cages now. It's another Simpsons moment. There's one where they're analyzing Homer's sperm, and it, 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 he's got a low count because of all the radiation, and it's like six sperm with Homer's head hit bonking heads with each other. Yeah. <laughs> just picture that of Nick right. Cage. And she's like, my God, that's not my husband. <laughs> but so he explains it, and why wouldn't he go with... So this voice modulator, which is like apparently where they really skimped on the whole budget of this entire face swap. <laughs> Everything's perfect, except no he's sense. got some broken chip that can't work. Why wouldn't he do that more often? Why wouldn't they be like, who are you? And he like fucks with his voice and they go like, what the hell? <laughs> I feel like you would go to that more often. Or, you know, show up at an FBI office and demand that they DNA test him. Something. Because, yeah, he has his old blood, right? Like, Right, yeah. And, like, in fact, he would also still have his original fingerprints because they didn't do anything to their <laughs> hand. So there were multiple ways they could identify that this person is the person he claims to be. Oh, <laughs> Can you guys stop nitpicking at this wonderful cinematic masterpiece of the, the offshore John Woo? Damn you with your parliamentary procedures. <laughs> I think it's time to go into the final showdown of the movie. Please. Please. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Ronnie, there is a funeral of Victor Lazaro, and we get to see our hero and our villain face off, if you will. Why don't you take it over? Uh, so in perfect Robert Rodriguez style, we have like a, a beautiful like Catholic church on a Desperado beach. Desperado is so much better than this. Yeah, Sorry. it's... And then um, there's doves because the FBI, uh, head of FBI wanted doves to be at his funeral. And there's only like two people at the funeral. And then somehow Nick Cage gets in there looking like Nick Cage or John Rolda looking in there looking like Nick Cage. And he's lighting a candle for some reason. And then they do the thing and they hand John Travolta a picture of a child. And he immediately wants to touch its face, but he instantly just crumples it up and throws it to the ground. Then they do a face-off in this church. And they shoot everything around each other besides each other. And then <laughs> and then like he grabs his wife and brings her in there for a Mexican standoff. And then so for no reason, the uh, Leia comes in, uh, <laughs> comes in too with guns. And then there's two more Goonie cronies that pop up out of nowhere. And then they have a, a super Mexican standoff where they're all facing guns. And then super Mexican yeah. standoff. It's yeah. Like so then, so then somehow Nicholas, uh, John Travolta's Nicholas Cage shoots behind him, gets the two guys to end that tension, and then somehow Nicholas Cage's John Travolta gets away, and they run away, and then there's a more Mexican standoffs, and now my head hurts. <laughs> yeah. Isn't this religious? 
Ah, yes. The eternal battle between good and evil, saint and sinner. But you're still not having any fun! I, I do kind of like, though, how they hang on the standoff where it's like, you know, Nick Cage and John Travolta, and then like another person pops up. Yeah. And then like another person <laughs> like, pops up. And yeah. it's almost like they're ducking and they come up from the ground, you yeah. know, like they were there the whole time. The camera just couldn't see them. This is between us. Leave them out of it. No, you should have left them out of it. Your son was an accident. I wanted to kill you. But you took it so personally. Why didn't you just kill yourself or let it go? No father could. No brother could either. Neither could a sister. Hey, baby. Sasha, what the fuck are you doing here? Gee, Archer, I guess I'm crashing. You okay, baby? Yeah, thanks. Sasha, baby. I'm Caster. That's Archer. I'm bored. Put the fucking gun down. Why don't you put your guns down? <laughs> uh, <wee! laughs> what a predicament! <laughs> the chapel they shot this in was not a chapel. It's part of the bathhouse at Leo Cabrillo Beach in San Pedro, which is part of Los Angeles. They dressed it up like a church, and... Uh, they, they did it out of um, necessity in the end. They'd originally planned to shoot the sequence at the same funeral where Archer's, or same uh, cemetery, excuse me, where Archer's son is supposed to be buried. And uh, it was supposed to be this gigantic thing with like hundreds of people at the funeral and a giant shootout that would end with, uh, with, with them getting back to the kid's grave. The writers originally wanted Archer's wife, the doctor, to make up a tranquilizer concoction oh, for him sake. that he was then going to fire, right? He was then going to fire at Castor using the same rifle that had been used to kill his kid. <laughs> they were supposed to have 13 days to shoot this scene, and I think the studio realized what was going on, and they were like, by the way, um, we're giving you five days instead, and you can't do this graveyard <laughs> shit. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that's, that's how that happened. This is why when you hear writers go, this movie is taken from me, this is bullshit, then you don't feel bad. <laughs> You're like, wait, wait, okay, no. everyone's just a hack. You're all fucking hacks. <laughs> you were being nuts and the studio said no, so. <laughs> so when this scene opened up, I had been looking for the doves, the John Woo doves, and I hadn't really seen him to this film to this point, and I saw a bunch of seagulls. I was like, my God, did he just replace doves with seagulls? Like, he's like, I can't afford the doves. We're fucked. So I'll just film a bunch of seagulls. Fly. My dove guy's out of town. <laughs> so I'll just get these beach rats that fly, like, to do it. But then he walked into the church. I was like, oh, oh, no. He found his dove guy. <laughs> like, they should have just contacted whoever sells Nick Cage's cocaine. Somehow I feel like anybody who can get cocaine get gets doves. Anything. <laughs> Part-time right? magician. They go hand in hand. But... <laughs> they also have pigeons outside of the church. So they got all three. They got the seagulls, then the doves, and then the pigeons. I was just waiting for peacocks to start walking through the scene. <laughs> just like, but, oh. I meant to add this in earlier. I'm going to pepper it in now before I forget it again. We're really ahead of it. But 
in between Archer as Caster escaping from prison and ending up at the funeral, they originally wanted him to end up hiding out at the real Caster's mother's house. And it was supposed to have been an opportunity script-wise to have him learn about how fucked up Caster's childhood was. And I, I swear to God, this is true. The writers said it. They originally wanted Caster's mother to be played by either Elizabeth Taylor or Jack Nicholson in drag. Those were their two choices. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> How long was this fucking movie originally? This is, it never ends. If they'd made it the way it was scripted four hours, it Jesus would have been like sitting Christ. through Kenneth Branagh's version of Hamlet, except not good. If they were going to get Nicolas Cage to do drag and be someone's drunk mother, I'll sit at... I'll, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, exactly. I'll sit another 30, 40 minutes for this film. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy in. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I had a question, too. This movie has a problem with the idea of time and how it works. Yes. So he's like, once he becomes the director of the FBI, he's untouchable. Like the last guy apparently was untouchable. <laughs> he was very touchable. He was very touchable. He was killed by touch. Um, <laughs> he goes, we'll never be able to get him. And she's like, well, at the funeral. And I was like, what? Does he become Thanos after the fucking funeral? Like, does he gain all his FBI powers and become a normal, like, after? Why not just be like, I'll get him when he's at home? Right. Like, <laughs> In the most public possible place doesn't really make Where any sense. Where there'll be the most security. Because the right. not only is the former FBI director there dead, but the new FBI director is there. Like, they're going to have a ton of... And everyone that would know them is going to be there. This is the worst time to do a hit. Right? And in fact, they make it obvious over the course of the film that his wife is a doctor who works on call and is frequently out of the house at odd hours and that the daughter comes and goes as she pleases. So they definitely could have found him at home by himself. And Dave's rapist. He's the most yeah. killable man ever. Like, right? Oh, that drove me crazy. I was like, does he get like the five rings of power after fucking? <laughs> yeah. He's you got to hit him before he gets reality. That's when you've got problems. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's J. Edgar Hoover's ghost possesses him and takes control and he operates the rest of the FBI. So he's a cross dresser then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the funniest line of the movie, other than everything that Cage has done to this point, at least to me, <laughs> is so they have the big Mexican standoff, the shootout happens, and she's dying after mm -hmm. she sacrifices herself to save who she thinks is Caster Troy, even though he doesn't act like Caster Troy. She goes, Take care of my boy. And he just goes, Yeah. <laughs> like, he might as well, we'll be like, <laughs> like I'll touch his face. I'll think about <laughs> like, it. He couldn't muster anything other than I will or, you know, of course. Like, it's, yeah. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After oh. about uh, 15 minutes of slow-mo bullets and no main characters getting shot. Nope. At least not in any substantial way. It does lead us to a speedboat chase, Shane. Oh, the greatest action scene of all time. So, this whole movie, and like John Woo, you expect it. People are flipping for no reason and jumping for no reason and doing all sorts of stuff that makes no sense. But then, this is why he got to direct Mission Impossible. Like, this scene comes up, and it's really nothing to do with John Woo, as how much those fucking stunt actors just smoked a cigarette and went, fuck it. 
Like, so they run to these boats, and it's typical John Woo stuff, you know, things are exploding, blah, blah, blah. They get in the boats, and then I'm watching, and this one boat slams into the other boat at 70 miles an hour, and you watch the boats bounce off each other, and the other one almost flips over. And I'm like, holy shit, they're really bashing boats together. This is like, this is like <laughs> on the level of bullet. Like, this chase scene is there. Then they proceed to continue through the harbor, um, where the next big oh my fucking god moment, where he launches a boat through a police boat. And it's really the boat launching through the police boat and jumping through. That part through. is good. Yeah. And then, like, because, like, it's, you can't fake that. That is... Uh -huh. And you just see the stunt guy with his mullet just, like, holding <laughs> on to the steering wheel. And so then, like, you think that this can't hold my beer anymore. And then <laughs> the stunt director is like, we could go harder. So then they go, he jumps. They have a stunt man jump onto the other boat while the other boat's going. Have a fight. And then he, as you referenced earlier, hangs off the boat. And, like, he is... This poor stuntman is... Injured the shit out of himself. Holding yeah. onto the side of the boat. And my wife comes in at this time, and I go, look at this shit. And she goes, oh, my God. And, like, <laughs> this guy's getting drugged by the boat. And, like, is trying to crawl. He ends up, like, putting his feet under him and water skiing and, like, climbing back onto the boat. And then the coup de grace, they launch the boat... And the poor stunt actors throw themselves off this boat that is flying through the air, and it explodes, and it is all real. There is no CGI. Many men were killed in the filming of this movie. <laughs> like many, many animals and men were harmed in the filming of this movie. Like <laughs> Wu pointed out during the commentary, there's only like two moments of the whole film where they use CGI, and one of them was just to put the actors' faces on the stuntman's bodies for one part of that fight. But yeah, the rest is practical. The thing I like leading up to it, too, is, like, Castor Troy, who also has, like, an, a semi-automatic weapon with the unlimited ammo cheat code activated, <laughs> he just mows away every poor fucking bastard that's in his way. Like, he sees some FBI guys, just shoot him down. Whoever's in his way, just shoot him down. The writers apparently had the same issue here they'd had earlier in the movie with the plane scene, where they'd written this final fight in multiple different ways, and Wu kept coming back and saying, oh, I don't really like it like this. And the reason they decided to set the funeral in the beach chapel, which wasn't really a beach chapel, is specifically so the characters would be near enough uh, to dock the boats to turn the ending into a, a boat chase. And when they sent this version of it, the way the two of the two writers tell the story, when they sent this version of the script to, to Wu's people, they got a phone call back from Wu's, I think, personal assistant saying, oh yeah, John really likes boat chases, we're gonna do this one. <laughs> <laughs> John really wants to do a boat chase. John likes like boats. <laughs> right? When they get in the boats, I, I groaned. I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be fucking lame. <laughs> and a lot of it is, but there are some really great things peppered in the boat chase that redeem it wholly for me. Uh, namely, a boat smashing through another boat. Like, that is just fucking cool. Didn't they do the same thing with a boat chase in one of Brosnan's Bond movies? I can't remember which one it's the oh, beginning of anymore. Um, the World is Not Enough. Not Enough, there you go. Yeah, I yeah. swear it's basically the same stunt. He mm -hmm. also yeah. runs the boat on land and drives it through the streets of London for a little bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a jet boat. <laughs> I forgot that part. I, I appreciate a good boat chase. <laughs> on land. <laughs> 
I'm glad we got the boat chase guy on for this episode. There's also an excellent boat chase in Quantum of Solace, along with yes. the eight other chases, because they couldn't write a movie. They just wrote a chase scene that is a movie. Fuck that whole movie. <laughs> I really like that movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, the, the ch- Quantum of Solace was the second one he was in, right? Yeah, Mary? during the writer's strike. The chase scene at the beginning took months for them to film, and a stunt driver actually died filming it. It, and they they filmed the entire thing at speed. They didn't speed those cars up with film. They filmed them doing like 60 across that road. He died in vain. No, I don't think so. Even if the rest of the movie weren't any good, that chase scene by itself is one of the best that's ever been on film. Did John Woo direct that? The opening like, you one? You can say whatever you want yeah. about the rest of the movie, but that chase scene's incredible. I'll say the rest of the movie blows. All right, well, I mean, you could be wrong about a few things here and there. but <laughs> So really quickly, um, so the boat, boat scene is amazing. It's fascinating, but then... When it ends, it goes to like the most boring oh. way to end the movie. It's so disappointing to go from the most awesome stuntmen, like choreography I've seen in a really long time, to they're just standing on a beach and he harpoons them. They totally switch over from these athletes that risk their lives and bodies <laughs> to these two aging actors that have to hit each other. <laughs> Another kind of fun note is for some reason, a lot of stuntmen are Australian. I don't know why it is. But, uh, crazy. Yeah. You know why. <laughs> All right. We could jab the boat. <laughs> Fuck it. I'll throw me mate off of it, too. You hold on. It'd be great. <laughs> you want me to kill anybody? We'll do it for a couple fosters and some health insurance. <laughs> uh, is it? Are you guys even doing Australian? What's going no. on? <laughs> Shane's trying to. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bloody Australian, I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a boat. Do you need your chimney sweep, do ya? <laughs> That's a cockney. Yeah. If no. they had cockneys, people definitely would have died. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Cockney stuntmen are the most risky. Dozens, yeah. <laughs> Chipsy fucking boatmen. <laughs> Can't say that word anymore, but it's okay, oh, guy Richie. <laughs> Pikey. Yeah, Pikey's the proper term. No, Pikey only refers to Irish travelers in the United Kingdom. The actual gypsies are Romani people. Are you a fucking gypsy expert? <laughs> right. There you go, you filthy mongrels. <laughs> oh, my God. I have no notes after the boat because, like, the rest of the movie is like, uh, why am I here anymore? I'm- I have I have one more note, and then that's basically it. I have, can we can we give him your penis? And that's that's my only note. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so the very end, the wife is still with John Travolta for, for literally no reason. But I love it because they wanted to do a reveal at the end after everything is just so nightly wrapped up and... So when, when he's, like, dying, he got shot, and he's, like, somehow not dead, the wife does not go to surgery with him. She just goes home and reads, you know, like, a trashy, yeah. like, you know, like, romance novel. No, and then and then he walks up and she goes, oh, you're alive, thank God. Oh, look, he brought another kid home so you can touch his face some more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, honey. Not only does he walk up, but he walks up with the most smoke that a smoke machine could ever make. <laughs> <laughs> Maximum smoke. It's like that scene of Schwarzenegger walking out of the vault at Cyberdyne in T2 where all the fucking halon is coming out after him. John Travolta was getting ready to film the movie Michael and he was doing the angelic thing. Gotta wait until the gas clears. Right, exactly. And literally, this is the story of how Darth Vader was made. It's just some random orphan he brings fucking home. <laughs> oh my god, John Travolta's Darth Vader sounds like one of the worst things that could ever happen. Oh god. Hey, I need to find Luke. 
Luke, I'm your father. <laughs> none, uh. of, none of the family, like, winces that Caster Troy's orphaned son is brought into this home. The man that has thoroughly destroyed and had sex with everyone in this house. Like, <laughs> it makes no goddamn sense. Gina Krishan's character specifically tells him at some point that she left the kid with her cousin. If she has living family, why would the kid not go live with them? Why would he be allowed to just take this child? It makes no sense. It also goes back to what I was talking about earlier, underlines that he does not give a shit about his daughter. She has every reason <laughs> to be angry at him. He, right? He does not care about her. He's like, no, the kid, the one that I lost. And I again, I understand why losing a kid would wreck somebody, but like it's like, oh, no, you're not important to me at all. It's the dead one I still care about. Here's this replacement, so go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, I don't think <laughs> most people go out and look for a lookalike kid. Like, right? <laughs> there was an alternate ending where he does not come home with the kid. And in this alternate ending, which they actually shot part of, there's also an implication that Caster found some way to trick the surgeons and is still in Archer's body. Regardless of whether or not you like that part of it, the ending that did not include bringing this kid home absolutely should have been the one they went with. John Woo swears to God that they showed both endings to test audiences and test audiences preferred the version where the kid comes home. And I'm like, how dumb were you specifically looking for people with the sub 100 IQ? Like, how could you possibly have gotten he's 60 percent of the audiences, according to Woo, preferred this ending. And I do not believe that. I don't believe it. The notes from the test audiences just said more boats. <laughs> There's Shane in the test audience. More boats, <laughs> less kids. <laughs> it's it's the cheesy '90s ending. Like they all have it. The you think they're dead, or like it, it, once again, I'll reference the Peacemaker and Broken Arrow and everything Ooh. else. Like they. There's the scene where like the secondary hero. I won't call them the main hero. The hero's assistant is like. <laughs> in the shot and then the real hero comes back like in uniform or like reveals themselves that they're not dead or yeah right con air yeah, does this exact ex thing exactly with, with john cusack and nick cage yeah yeah there's the reveal that they're alive and then it's like everything's gonna be okay and like a thumbs up to the camera like that's basically what it is and they had this kid that yeah. john woo introduced that now they had to do something with because he's now an orphan and they didn't want audience to be like, well, what about the kid? So like, a, he didn't make it. He just, yeah. Right. He just brings him home or like maybe what would have been a cooler ending is like, because this is a low key Batman film, like just have the kids staring at a picture of John Travolta and be like, Oh, get you Archer. You killed my dad. Like, a super villain is created. Yeah, right? He mm -hmm. killed his mother, you know, like arguably the one person who actually did care about him. Yep. Sort of. Maybe maybe the kid puts on like Nick Cage's face on his face and it's just like dun 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 Wouldn't it be great if that were the sequel? That <laughs> the kid kidnaps fucking Archer to steal his face. <laughs> face off to child's play. There it is. <laughs> God. I recently was reminded that Child's Play got remade in twenty nineteen and that remake is fucking awful. It's got Aubrey Plaza, you shut your fucking mouth. Oh, your fucking the, mouth. Um, the Luke Skywalker one? Yeah, exactly. Where Hamill does the voice. Yeah. Apparently this series that came out last year is really good. That's what I've heard, actually. I haven't seen any of it myself, so no judgment. But I, 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 during the same conversation where I was reminded, I was also told that series is much better. So, yeah. Huh. 
I'll have to watch it and see if that turns out to be true. I mean, not that the original Child's Play movies were works of art or anything, but there is something sort of weirdly endearing about the first two, at least. Chucky. Chucky. Plus, <laughs> Brad Dourif is amazing. They didn't put that guy in almost anything. But, yeah. Huh. All right, fellas. Any final thoughts before we do ratings? I don't fucking have anything else to say about this movie. I was, it's um, it's nonsense, and I'll, I'll get when I get to the rating a little more. <laughs> but like the things I would change kind of ruins my rating system. So I don't really have anything else to add to this shit. <laughs> this this movie made me sad, and not because of the plot or the <laughs> acting, but just because I remember movies with stuntmen. And like when yeah. when real stunt acting, and it kind of died with the end of Jackie Chan, like those eras and stuff like that of just real stunts, and yeah. like you know I'm not asking for people to get hurt and die on set, but like I am. There's an art, <laughs> a craft to action films that this is why action films nowadays don't have the same feel because you don't have people who are really built for the action film doing it or people who care about real action and so like that's why i think the late 80s and early 90s were kind of your heyday for action films because you had real stuntmen and real action and this movie made me sad that that is gone and replaced with transformographizers <laughs> there's exceptions that there, that there are out, some so. like the raid i always all the james to. bond movies like the like all the um uh, mission impossible ones the stunts in the Bond movies are fucking incredible. I think just the insurance on stuntmen has gotten so outrageous that you just would rather have a robot do it. Like, <laughs> sure. Or a cartoon. Or CG. Yeah, exactly. Easy. It's like losing fucking practical models in favor of CGs. It's not that the CG's not neat, but it's not the same. It, this, this movie points to me why the Fast and Furious have gone so far off the rail. It used to be a movie about car racing. Dude, I mean, and to your point, and I don't mean this as a knock to what you just said, but it wasn't even really about car racing. The original movie was about a young FBI agent who gets sent undercover to bust people in fast cars who were stealing electronics off trucks. Right. And look what they turned it into. Family. Now they go to the moon. It's fucking weird. And they turned it into something amazing. Okay. You know what? If you're allowed to disparage Bond, I'm allowed to call those movies total garbage. We can can talk about why Tokyo Drift is the best film, hands down. But, you know. We got to get Alan back for that then. Alan died in Miami. (laughs) (laughs) Who hasn't died in Miami? You always come back. It's always a fake death. (laughs) We can get his twin brother. (laughs) Armando. Anal. (laughs) Uh, this is some deep cut references to guys' podcast. Yeah. <laughs> as deep as uh. anal can get. <laughs> Please wrap this up. <laughs> All, right, All right, Steve, final thoughts? All right, real quick. Uh, just a couple of things I thought were worth mentioning as far as notes go. There's an internet rumor that claims that Chow Yun-Fat was originally cast or was supposed to be cast as the Asian-American FBI agent in Archer's group. and <laughs> the that, token. Yeah, right. And that Cho got the part instead when, when Chow Yun-Fat couldn't make it. That doesn't line up with what the writers and the director have to say in the commentary. Apparently, Margaret Cho found out this film was in production or going to be in production before they'd even done all the casting and had her agent reach out to the casting director because she wanted to be in a John Woo movie. According to what they said, that part was never offered to Chow Yun-Fat nor any other. The writers do say during the commentary they asked woo multiple times to try to find a part for Chow fat and it never happened because they couldn't figure out which part to cast him in um casters gold guns 
were custom made. There were several of them, obviously five of them were custom made for the movie by a professional gunsmith. As part of the deal to offset production costs, they pre-sold one of those guns to the group of people who owned Planet Hollywood. So there's a Planet Hollywood somewhere that's got one of those gold guns. I don't know which location. Are those still around? Um, I Maybe. You know what? You're right. I think they did go bankrupt at some point, so I'm not really sure what the ultimate fate of that, that <laughs> Where is. Where is the gun? Someone tell us in the comments. <laughs> right? Find us the golden gun. <laughs> right? Nick Cassavetes shaved his head for this part without telling anyone in advance he was going to do it, and lucky for him, he got away with it. We liked it. But funnily enough, at one point during production, Gina Gershon asked Wu to be allowed to shave her head to make it look like she was really losing her shit in the wake of finding out what was going on. And he told her he did not want her to do it. He wouldn't let her. Um, no, it's a distraction. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of what he thought, too. Also, last thing there. I have no idea if this is true or not, but I just thought it was an interesting rumor. Joel Schumacher reportedly visited this set while they were making it and was at that point working on what was supposed to be his third Batman movie, which was going to feature Scarecrow. And he apparently was so impressed with Nick Cage on the day that he visited that he offered Nick Cage the part of Scarecrow right there and then. And apparently they were planning on doing it until that project got canned mercifully at the fucking will of some god. (laughs) And uh, Schumacher ended up using uh, Nick Cage later on as the lead in the movie 8mm, which is Mm. not a great movie, but definitely superior to Schumacher's Batman films. So anyway, those are... Right. He used the bat card to finance it, so it worked out. (laughs) I never left the cave without it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. So anyway, those were my last notes on the movie. Okay. We are going to go into ratings... Starting with the enthusiastic Ronnie. Hmm, I feel like you're undercutting me and making fun of my personality. <laughs> don't take his shit, Ronnie. He doesn't like you. <laughs> I don't like you, you fuck off shit. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm going to give this seven uncomfortable Ooh. John Travolta touches out of ten. That's a good rating. Because there's a lot of things I would actually... Because I don't like action movies, but... And there's a lot of things I'd want to change and see changed to make it into a movie I would enjoy. But for the sheer bonkersness of the performances by Cage and Travolta and the top-notch stunt and action work, I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 because this is not a movie I wanted to see. <laughs> but uh, I was very entertained. It's a little too long, but it was very entertaining. So if you like t- trashy, trashy action movies, I highly recommend this movie. <laughs> the trashiest of the trashy, <laughs> yeah. certainly. <laughs> I'm going to go next. I am going to give this six and a half slow-mo doves out of (laughs) ten. The reason being is that this movie is okay. (laughs) Right? So it's it's pretty good. It's all right. It's fine. It exists in your mind better than it is when you watch it. And what I mean by that is when you remember this movie, you remember the key moments that stand out. And those are, you know, they, there's some good moments in this movie. There's a, everyone remembers the moment where the daughter takes the knife and she uses the advice from the bad guy and uses it against him and little stuff like that. Of course, Nicolas Cage's faces and him saying face off 20 times in a row. <laughs> like these things you remember 
and when you watch it, it's a little bit more of a drag than you remember, unfortunately. It's kind of like Mad Max uh, Beyond Thunderdome. When you think of it, you think of the first half of the movie, and then when it gets to the second half, you're like, oh, fuck, I forgot about this bullshit. <laughs> that's another one we're going to have to do then, because that's another movie that I don't like, but I also don't hate. I, I will defend parts of it. The Lost Boys shit in that movie is, like, too much for me. <laughs> but anyway, that's it for me. Six and a half out of ten. Steve, you're up. You know what? My rating and yours are going to be surprisingly close to one another. I'm going to give this film six out of control adolescent daughters out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's clever enough and entertaining enough that I don't really dislike it. And I would actually say that compared to at least some of the other action schlock that was being peddled at the time, it was probably better. I also agree with you completely that anytime I think about this movie, once it's been more than a few months since I last saw it, my memory of it is always more positive than my experience ends up being see when I see it. I always remember it really positively. In fact, I remembered it really positively before rewatching it for this because it had been like two years or more since the last time I'd seen it. And, you know, I rewatched it again and was like, ah, this is more of a letdown than I remember it being. But, uh, could have been a lot worse, could have been a lot dumber, and there were enough kernels of, of cleverness in it and an interesting enough idea and the stunts and blah, blah, blah that I will at least call it marginally above average when compared to other similar movies of the same type from that era. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. And last up for ratings is Shane. Mm, yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to give this three Mary Kate and Ashley's Parent Traps out of five. Ooh. God, get the Olsen twins in there. That's nasty. It's basically kind of like that with guns. But, um... <laughs> it's not wrong. You're not wrong. I... This movie, as you said earlier, everyone remembers more fondly than when you watch it. <laughs> I'm a big fan of 90s action, and if you like this movie, definitely watch Broken Arrow or The Peacemaker with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. They're better movies. Well, Broken Arrow's eh. But Peacemaker is definitely good. And it's the same film. Yeah, it's kind of 50-50, but... That bow chase, if it wasn't for that, I would have been way lower. But that thing was so <laughs> jaw-dropping and amazing that I was into it. Nick Cage can only act so crazy for so long before you're just tired. Yeah. And John Woo, it, when he brings his tropes over to American cinema, it doesn't feel the same. It feels like cliche rather than an art style. Like, Tarantino's feet still feel like there's some art to it. The, the doves are starting to look a little fucked up now. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I would agree with you in the sense that Tarantino's got a broader scope of capability than Wu. Wu's thing either works or doesn't. It's very black and white. Tarantino, there's definitely some shades of gray there. Yeah, Wu's thing needs to be in an hour and a half film about a cop hunting a mafia member or something. Like, it... It doesn't need to be in this psychological thriller about trading places. Like, <laughs> No, it's not a great movie by any means. In fact, I'm sure people will pick a lot of flaws in it, but anyone who wants to see what a proper Hong Kong movie looks like when made American style should watch The Replacement Colors instead. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. Go watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we have it. This has been a lot of fun. I want to thank all three of you for being here. Steve, Ronnie, and Shane. Thanks, Ronnie and Shane, man. Thanks. Especially Thank to you. Ronnie and Shane from Wasted Potential. Now, Ronnie, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and where people can find you. Go ahead, Shane. 
Well, I'd like to say it's our podcast, but it's really my podcast. <laughs> we do Waste Potential podcast where we do basically commentaries over movies where we drink, make drinking games, talk about films that we remember fondly, but normally don't turn out as fondly. Um, and we also do like last half full episodes where we talk about good movies that we really like and also drink. Uh, most of the time I say terrible things that I mostly regret and Ronnie just keeps it in. So, uh, you can find us. We post memes on, uh, Twitter. Ronnie really runs it all. I just do things. Yeah. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, email us at podcasterspotential at gmail.com. If you want to join our cult called the Woodsboro Sheriff's Department. And we're also on Patreon. <laughs> yeah. We don't deserve any money, but we'll take it. That's very nice. <laughs> I like Woodsboro Sheriff's Department. Help us solve crimes with Scooby and the gang. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys very much. If you, the listener, want to write in to Big Dumb Movie, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com or find us on Instagram, Big Dumb Movie Podcast, where we similarly post memes, sometimes related to the movies that we're reviewing. But the <laughs> big ask I have of you, the listener, is to leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. That is something that helps us out a lot. Also, Spotify recently introduced a star rating system, which you can only do after you listen to a full episode start to finish on Spotify, I, I have come to find. So leave us a five-star uh, rating there as well. Other than that, I think that's about it. Again, thank you guys so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun on this longer episode of a movie that perfectly fits this podcast. It is the biggest, dumbest movie, period. So thank you guys very much. We love you, and good night.
Good luck editing this shit. Good luck.